Well, welcome back, everyone, to this edition of the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all the players at the table. I'm one of your hosts, Dungeon Master Chris. And I'm Dungeon Master Mitch. And we are so excited for this episode today because... Uh, you may have seen him lurking around Twitter, you may have read his books, you may have heard Rich Howard talk about him, uh, but we have today a very special guest by the name of Lou Anders, and if you are not familiar with any of his work, you should be, uh, because his books in the Thrones and Bones series are absolutely phenomenal, and if you're looking for any books uh, for kids to read, these would be the ones, or to read to your kids, these would be the books that you should get for your kids. We have him on today because his world that he has built is absolutely phenomenal. And he spent, I mean, we, you'll hear in the interview that we have with him, he spent, I don't know, he's got like 60,000 words on each individual province <laughs> that he has created. Which very little of that makes it, well, not, I shouldn't say very little of that, but he said like the majority that he has written down compared to what makes them in the books is minuscule and he's like i love talking about my world because in the books you only get glimpses of wherever they're going and you don't you may hear rumors from other places but there's so much that he has and so we get a lot of like insight into his world of qualth and uh, a lot of good gems of uh, what to do in world building in this interview coming up yeah, his experience is really something that helps him out a lot, and and I think in the end will help us help us out a lot because the things that he says are just they're they're gold. I mean, I tweeted uh, tweeted something that uh, he said after we were done recording because I was like, this is too good <laughs> to wait until the episode comes out. Like, I gotta tweet this now, and it was it was so good. But before we get into that, we have story time, and before that, we have some shout outs for our faithful listeners who have gone to iTunes and given us some five star reviews. Uh, and so we will start those off with one by the name of Mr. Big Jack Heart Attack. <laughs> and he says, get your pickaxe, exclamation point, five stars. There are a lot of good ideas to mine from this mountain of ideas. And that's what he wrote. And so we thank you for that. Big Jack Heart Attack. <laughs> Thanks so much. The next one comes from Nicole E. and is entitled Can't Get Enough. And Nicole says, just caught up with all the episodes and I'm listening to some favorites again. Mostly the creation and inspiration episodes. Hey, that's what this is. Yeah. But I will probably also review the story times in order to get a better picture of the campaigns. Love the podcast and will be DMing with greater vigor with this to inspire. DM Ek, a.k.a. Rorick. All right. Thank All right. you so much. Thank you so much, DM Eck, a.k.a. Rory. <laughs> Our next one is by Crash Murdoch, and it's entitled Great Source of DMing Ideas. I learned about this podcast from Aram of God's Fall, and I quickly became a subscriber and a fan. The guys do a great job of providing information and inspiration for DMs new and old. Their descriptions of their home campaigns are fun and entertaining, and the meat of the episode is always full of great ideas. Keep up the great works, guys. Thank you very much, Crash Murdoch. We appreciate that uh, you've come over and, and decided to check us out, and we're glad you're here and a part of the block party. Now. Yeah, and thanks, Aram, for the shout-out. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> the next one comes from a very happy DM and is entitled Amazing Show, and a very happy DM says, As a new DM, this show has been phenomenal at giving me a plethora of great ideas. Every week when I get done preparing, I scour the internet for D&D content, and this has been the best so far. I cannot express in words how grateful I am that you guys work so hard to make this show. 
please don't stop making amazing content for all DMs. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. A very happy DM. We are glad <laughs> to be able to say that we are part of the reason I think that you are a very happy DM. So. Yeah, that makes us very happy DMs as yes, well. Yes, exactly. So without any further ado, let's get into the story time for this week. Story time. The time during the episode where we talk about what happened last week during our campaigns. Our favorite moments, what we learned about ourselves, and what we learned about each other. Please join us now as we enjoy story time. All right, so for story time, Chris, we started two new campaigns recently, and uh, we got to play in my new campaign. We finished off the Riders of Shemesh campaign, the Adventures in Shemesh, and now we are starting a campaign I have dubbed voyage on the unending sea and, and i'll so, create something that hijacks the name of your campaign again so. <laughs> right yeah just like uh you had dragon wars and i had dragon wars <laughs> on my Atos timeline <laughs> since before you were born no that, not that long wow i mean yeah you are older than me but that would make you like two <laughs> that would be ridiculous you, you have, i'm secretly a lot older than you <laughs> <laughs> you're like 47 and you just don't know i have it. benjamin button disease you just age really well <laughs> Exactly. So we started the Voyage on the Unending Sea uh, campaign, and this is the time that Hashtag Magic Mark will finally hopefully get his his answer that has been asked me so many times uh, answered. His Not his answer, his question answered. Is Atos round or flat? And so this is going to be a campaign where it's taken place on a... We got a boat, and you guys are heading out with three boats and you're on this expedition into basically Atos. The map that I have made is uh, this map of all the lands. And then people like we've we've played the risk game of the risk map that I, I made of Atos. And there's always the question being posed, like, can I like go to the west and come out on the other side of the map? Like, is it is it round? And uh, so basically what happens is if you sail either west from the known lands or east from the known lands or north or south, you're going to hit this body of water that is known as the unending sea. And so it just goes on forever as far as what the most inhabitants of Atos believe. And then most inhabitants of Atos also believe that if it ends, if the unending sea ever does end, you would fall off the edge of the earth, the edge of Atos. And so uh, you guys are part of this voyage that's led by one of our playable characters known as Liriel Evenwin, which is uh, Lauren's PC. Uh, she's playing with us, and she is a half-elf and a noble, and she actually is just an NPC currently because basically it's one of our friends who's going to be moving up in a about a month or two and then joining us in the campaign, and so we wanted her to have a character in the campaign, and she's the one that's the one that's the entrepreneur, the putting the money into this campaign, wants to uh, go out into the unending sea and see what happens when you cross the unending sea. And so, uh, Chris, you you and uh, the rest of the members of the group are like crew members. So, yeah, some of the characters that we have, you already said Liriel. She's kind of the person that is, like, funding this trip. Like, she has put forth the money or her family or whatever it is. I don't remember exactly what it is. But they put forth the money 
to make this voyage possible because they're really they're really intrigued by this. Uh, we have Zillocent, which is a a Carnith. Which Mitch, do you want to explain a Carnith a little bit? Carnith are pretty much basically we took all the races that whenever I do a campaign, I do races that are specific to the region we're in. And so, although you guys are going into the Unending Sea, like you're still starting in a specific right. region, a specific land. So you're starting the land of Treka, and so Carniths are. Uh, native to the land of Treka, and they are basically rock people. Like they, their origin story is kind of muddled. Like they all even believe different things. Some of them believe they're descendants of stone giants. Some of them don't even believe in gods. They have all these different various origin stories, but they're basically stone people. I basically I said, think of the the rock giant that. Thor destroys in the dark world. Oh yeah. <laughs> and like make it make him a little bit shorter, make him about medium height, and that's what a Karnith yeah. pretty much looks like. So, yeah. so that's what a Karnith So that's is. played by JP. He's a he's his name is Zillocent and he's kind of like the head of security on the boat cuz he's got he's got the muscle to do it. And so if anything happens on the boat that needs attention, it kind of goes through him. So he's kind of like our muscle on the ship. Uh, we have Duradin Thunder Axe, and that's a dwarf played by Brother Casey. Uh, and what was his job again, Mitch? I don't remember what – did he have a job, or was he just kind of there? He's he's a crew member. Specifically, he is in charge of the crow's nest. That's so what it was, yeah. being on top of the crow's nest and, like, trying – and which is going to be a really boring job, right, in, yep. <laughs> in a campaign where you guys are going into the unending sea. I see water that way, that way, and that way. Yeah, and he's a paladin <laughs> as well, so he's just – Oh, and he's also – he's also we, we didn't start off this way, but we decided halfway through, we're like, you know what? He's he's the first mate too. Oh, that's um, right. Yeah, that's right. He is the first mate. Because we decided we were we were working through jobs as uh one of our players is a captain of the ship that we're mm -hmm. on and so it, they decided, "Oh yeah, yeah, I trust this guy. He is my yep. first mate." He's actually the first person. They're the next person we're going to talk about. Uh Garzak Gorsh, who is a Varako, which is like a warthog creature, right? Yep. Yep. So he is our smelly captain. Uh, that's played by Caleb. So <laughs> he's the guy that kind of gives the orders for everything that's going on. Uh, we also have Cedric, and I don't remember his last name because I forgot to write it down. Do you remember his last name? I think it's Gear Sprocket. Not 100% sure on that, but we'll we'll correct ourselves later yeah, on. Yeah, we'll, we'll go with that because we'll probably never use his last name ever again in any of the story times. <laughs> so you, you can believe it's Gear We Sprocket. will call him Cedric. Uh, so he's a gnome. He's kind of like the tinkerer. He's in charge of the, the engine room on the ships, which we'll talk about those a little bit because those are kind of cool. Uh, cool little creation that Mitch has come up with as to how to power ships faster than wind. So that's uh, that's pretty cool. And then we have my character, Sanjen. Uh, he is an elf, uh, but he doesn't take a last name because he doesn't he doesn't like the origins of his last name, and so he doesn't have one at this point in time. Uh, but he is the guy that's in charge of like the inventory of the ship, like the yep. food, the materials. Yeah, he's the quartermaster of the ship. So he oversees uh, all sorts of, you know, if people put things in the inventory, he makes sure that it's taken care of. You know, if people need to take stuff out, he makes sure that that's he makes sure that that's taken care of. Uh, so that's that's my character. He's a ha or he's a an elf monk. So and so uh, you got that's that's the party that we have, and so. Uh, Caleb as the captain, Captain Garzak and Liriel uh, and and Cedric, the gnome engineer, like they all have to go before they set sail. They have to go before this council because 
in the land of Trekka, each city is run by this council. And this, so they go before the council to get their voyage approved. Uh, and so that kind of goes kind of okay, like, because they have to basically vote to agree on it. And when they hear what they're trying to do, there's a couple gnomes in the council and gnomes are always looking to be like, yeah, let's, let's find new knowledge. Let's, let's figure this out. But then there were some members of the council that were like, uh, we don't really want you guys doing this. We're not going to approve this because we can't approve something which you're just going out into the unending sea, which we know what's going to happen to you. You're going to die. Right. It doesn't matter how much food you bring because you're go. Some of them believe either it, the unending sea is truly unending. So I, I, one of the council members even said like, why would the gods name the sea, the unending sea, if there was an end to it? Right. And so they're like, you're going to die. How can I, how can I approve this? And then we had some of them that were like, this is blasphemy. The gods, made the unending sea to keep us from trying to cross it. <laughs> like it's, it's there for a reason. Procon would be upset with this. I cannot approve this more like along the lines of like, it's not about your, your well being. It's about, this is a blasphemous statement thinking that there's something at the other end of the unending sea or that the world is, is round. It's just a completely ridiculous idea to these people. But eventually, despite one member of the council who was really against it, uh, they agreed to let you go on this journey with a condition that you had to procure. Basically, there's three ships uh, that are going on this journey. The Wet Lash, which is your ship. Wet. The Wet. Wet Lash. uh, The Sea Chariot. And the Noggle's Demise. And so we have these three ships that are going this voyage. And to be able to do this, you guys were given the task that you needed to, before the ships left uh, the day after, you guys had to procure a cleric for each of your ships. And so you guys went out. I believe it was you and it was Sanjen. Yep. And it was Captain Garzak. And you guys went out and you're like, oh, we're going on the Unending Sea. Let's head to the Temple of Procon. Because we thought this would be a great idea, right? (laughs) Uh, And it was a great idea in my mind until we got there and realized that all of the Tide Wardens, which is the name that you gave for the priests in uh, the temples of Procon, are all a bunch of jerks. uh, And they don't believe that we should be doing this. They think we're crazy. And I was like, look, no, like this would be good. Like, And I, I, like we tried talking to him, like, what if you're wrong? Like, what if these are just like, what if these are just theories that you've studied into for hundreds and thousands of years and they're actually wrong? Like trying to pull a Martin Luther reformation on them. Like <laughs> we're going to nail the 95 theses to the door before we leave. And we're going to take the tide wardens of Procon with us out into the unending sea. It's like, that's great. We can have, Which you we can, guys basically got laughed at. For oh that. yeah. <laughs> because these, these tide wardens and you found a lot of, the priests, a lot of the people in the city, like they thought you guys were fools for trying to yep. attempt this voyage. Yep. Because once again, it's it's the unending sea. If you go into it, you're gonna die. But the tide wardens especially are like, the sea is Procon's domain. Right. And you are not supposed to go into the unending sea and try and basically it's I think they saw it as like a you're trying to to defeat Procon. You know what? I didn't even think about this at the time, but I imagine it as like the Tower of Babel, like of Procon. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're trying to beat the unending sea to cross the unending sea. Oh, sure. That's blasphemy. Yeah. 
But they did give you a clip. They did give you. They did point you towards a. They gave us somebody, all right. Somebody yep. in the Temple of Procon. Yep. So <laughs> I said to them, I was like, "Hey, do you have any? Do you have any Tide Wardens that would be willing to go on this?" And he, the guy that I erased his name because he's a jerk and I don't care about him anymore. <laughs> he was like, "Yeah, we have somebody. Uh, go talk to Acolyte Stephen." I was like, "Acolyte? No, we wanted a Tide Warden." He goes, "No, you'll want Acolyte Stephen." So we went over and saw Acolyte Stephen, and he was, he, is, he was busy doing he a was job. Busy doing a job. He was feeding the huge octopus that they had in the temple, and I walked up, or we walked up, and said hi to him. And uh, do you mind re-impersonating uh, his voice for oh, everybody? Uh, How's it going, guys? Yep, <laughs> that's the voice. That's the voice that gives me nightmares. Uh, and so. We decided to take Acolyte Stephen along with us. And at at one point in time, (laughs) I pushed him in because he was the most annoying thing in the world. To the octopus. To the octopus octopus pit. (laughs) And so we went and we tried to find some other Tide Wardens that would want to go back with us. And then we went back. And And you you did find another one. You found a a cleric of... Farlane, oh, that's right. Yeah, we went. Uh, we went a, to go a find a satyr known as Didymus Elderhorn, and he he was like, "Yes, I'll I'll travel with yeah, you." Yeah, of like, course, wanderer um, like, Farlane as a wa- yeah as a wanderer, which, uh, which the, are yep. the uh, the clerics of Farlane. Yep. Like he's like, "How can I say no to a journey that could potentially be an unending journey?" Like he saw it as a like like an unending journey. This is absolutely if there's what a way Farlane I'm gonna go out. To this is gonna be the way. Yep. Yeah. So he, but you he, did go back for Stephen. Yeah, he wasn't hard to convince at all. He's like, yeah, you're not crazy. Let's do this thing. Uh, and so then we decided to go back for Stephen. Why did we decide to go back for him? I think that the Captain Garzak was like, I think you didn't want to, but Captain Garzak yeah. was like, no, we could use him. Yeah. So we, he's willing. We went back and got Stephen, and he's now with us on the ship. <laughs> awesome. Which led to some interesting times. Yeah, we'll but, talk so, about this. So you guys... Uh, the other ships procured clerics, and you guys decided, like, hey, we 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 paid the tax to leave. We got the clerics. We're ready to go. And so the next day, you're all set. You're preparing to ship off. You're raising the sails. And uh, one of the reasons why this you guys think this voyage may actually work is because of the engines, which are like steampunk like engines, but with magic. And so that's what hashtag magic marks character Cedric has built these, his father built these Mm -hmm. engines. And so he kind of knows how to run them. He knows how to maintain this magical. And so I have to credit Mark here because he's the one that actually kind of worked on how do these things work. And so it's this magical basically sets up this portal that it, it shoots out water, this like cannon that shoots out water, from the plane of water, the elemental plane of water. And so it just like it rockets out water and kind of gives you this jet like motor to this big sail ship. And so even if there's no wind, you guys can go as long as these engines are working. And so they've been put onto all three of the ships. And part of the captain's pay is, hey, if you guys do this, uh, and we survive, not only will you be paid well, but you'll be able to keep this new technology on your ship, making your ship like the fastest ships around. Yeah. And so you guys are getting ready to leave, and some you guys started to hear something. Well, we're, we're on our way back. Uh, we're like on the docks, and we hear uh, one of the lords that had an issue with us leaving, he had rallied behind him 
some tide wardens of Procon and also just a bunch of like a bunch of lay people that were just like super upset that we were leaving. And it was like this it was like this mob mentality coming down the docks to try and stop us from yeah. even getting out of the docks to begin with. And they said that one of the zealots, the one that uh, you first talked to whose name you erased, but I have not. It's Naaman Levinmar. Yep. Uh, he, the Tide he Warden, shall not like be one named. of the higher, yeah, one of the one of the older Tide Wardens of Procon said that an omen had been cast the night before. And do you remember what that yeah, omen was? Yeah, it killed all the animals within the, or killed all the sea creatures within the temple. Yeah, like all the sea creatures in the temple died, and he has taken that as Procon disapproves of this venture and you must stop and i pretty much said to him like no it's because procon disapproves of you (laughs) (laughs) and so that happened and the lord is also there saying like i'm a lord of this city you better stop lyriel even wind is like we need to go to captain garzak we need to get out of here quick and you see uh the noggles demise which is kind of this rough group of fighters like just their ship just takes off and all of a sudden because they take off things get escalated and all of a sudden the mob starts to rush you guys and of course we have a couple of servants that aren't on the boat yet some crew members yeah and sanjan has like this thing where like all life is precious to him like where like it's not okay for people to die uh, like yeah, it, you, like you being compared murdered. Sanjin to Morgan in yeah. The Walking Dead. Well, the Dead, first time that we played him, like. like the first time I played Sanjin was like two weeks before we really got to know Morgan yeah. again, and so like I watched spoilers. Yeah, I watched the first episode, <laughs> like where Morgan, like you hear his story, and I was just like, "Gosh, dang it, Sanjin is basically Morgan," which is great. Like I'm excited for that. Uh, but yeah, so we started fighting, and like these guys, these like. we could have just left them behind right like we could have we could have left the two servants behind or the crew members behind and i was just like i can't do it like sanjan can't (laughs) leave behind these poor guys who are probably you know they might get killed they might be in prison i was like that's not fair for them to be like they're they have no reason to be put in jail or killed and so sanjan hops off the boat to go and save them there's a battle that ensues between them sanjan always seems to use non-lethal force but like just tries to knock people out and like there's one point in time in this battle where zillicent the big carnith like ended up slicing a guy's chest open and i was like i can't let him die like i know that this probably isn't the you know it's probably not good for them to be doing this like they're probably wrong but i can't let him die and so i like i just rolled heel checks for like three rounds in a row because i was like i'm not gonna let him bleed out right <laughs> as this fight's going on around us and i tried to do it with as many people as possible i think a couple people ended up dying basically you guys started ending up going and the ship is like breaking away mm-hmm. from the dock and the temp uh the priest of procon started to raise the water up so that yep. the mob could like swim onto the ship and it just turned into this like trying to knock the guys off yeah. like so that you guys can get away yep. And so, yeah, the battle kept going and kept going. Eventually, we got far enough away where, like, they couldn't keep doing that. And there was, like, yes. there was like three of the people that were still alive. Yeah, you guys tied them up. We, yep. Well, we did tie them up. And then eventually, we threw them overboard, uh, mm-hmm. gave them some flotation things, and was like, all right. Like, Sanjan didn't feel right about killing them. He kind of convinced people to not kill them. Uh, and then they just threw them overboard. It's like, well, we're not going to, like, there's no point in killing them. They can't do anything else to us now. Like, they can't catch up with us, things like that. So it was, it was one of those moments where it was really interesting to roleplay because there was a lot of different opinions as far as what to do in that moment. Yeah. So it's going to be it's gonna be fun developing him and developing, you know, 
his philosophy as we're going through uh, the rest of this campaign. So you guys have made it away from the dock, and you guys are setting sail on to go to the unending sea. And so we'll have to find out next time what happens uh, to you guys. But I thought it was definitely interesting seeing this uh, this clash of the the priests of Procon being upset because they're like, what you're doing is blasphemy. And you have right. like you have certain members of, uh, you know, higher up members of the crew that are just like and the captains, possibly some of them who might just be doing it for a job. And some of you guys might be like, I'm kind of I am doing this to find out what is at the end of right. the unending sea. And a lot of the but a lot of the crew is doing it for a job. But this like intelligence like we want to find out more knowledge versus this like we're steeped in tradition and you are not supposed to do this and this clash at the beginning of the campaign where uh not everybody wanted you to get going on this voyage yeah right right so yeah check in with another story time soon to find out what happens when they set sail on the unending sea i'm starving we ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days so for the meet today, we are joined by a very special guest. We have Lou Anders here on the show with us. Lou Anders is the author for the books Frostborn, Nightborn, and the upcoming Skyborn in the Thrones and Bones series. Lou has studied in Oxford and London for a year. He's directed plays in Chicago. He's worked as a journalist and an editor in the sci-fi and fiction field. He's also been an art director. And currently, he is a full-time children's book author with those books that we mentioned, the Thrones and Bones series. He also has a Hugo for Best Editor and Long Form and a Chesley for Best Art Director. Lou, we are so excited to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I am excited to be here. (laughs) So uh, first off, Lou, we just want to... Besides just welcoming you to the show, and we we just let a awesome read a awesome list of accomplishments. You've you've done a lot of things in your life, Lou, and we we just kind of wanted to know. Tell us a little bit about yourself, whether that's a little bit expounding upon uh, all this stuff we just told our listeners, or just tell us a little about yourself personally. Well, I um I have worn a lot of different hats in a lot of different cities. I uh, grew up in the deep south where uh, it was much deeper than it is now. And there wasn't a lot of uh, understanding of anything artistic. So I, you know, I, I did weird things. I played role-playing games. I liked, I liked strange TV shows and read comics. And everyone said, oh, you must be a writer. You, you must be a writer, right? And I said, well, I guess, because that was all there was. You know, we had no concept that you could be anything else. They, <laughs> they knew a couple Southern writers, so they thought, oh, you must be a writer. You know, went to college and majored in alcoholism. And uh, didn't didn't really learn anything. And in my final years in college, I ended up taking a, an acting and directing for film class for no other reason than it just looked interesting and I needed something to do. Fell in love with theater. Spent a year doing the whole and all the all the undergraduate acting programs they offered, and then got a scholarship to study theater in Oxford and London for a year. Uh, moved to Chicago with the intention of acting. Ended up directing. Uh, really late comedy in a <laughs> a dangerous crack neighborhood where we often had more people on stage than in the audience. Hmm. 
Did that for two years, met a guy who became my mentor named Dan Decker, who taught screenwriting. Moved out to Los Angeles to be a screenwriter. Worked as a production assistant for a time doing things like dumping fake money off a building onto the heads of rap bands and things like and then and then, and then picking it all up later um and uh of course because that's the job exactly ended up um being hired to be titan uh books i think they were they're titan publications now very they needed a los angeles liaison they were starting a star trek magazine and at the time they, they wanted to do an 80 page full color oversized magazine that would have like 120 pictures per issue and hmm. 30 interviews and articles and there was nothing like that that existed. You know, you had Star Trek Communicator that would have one interview and then 10 pages of advertisement. And not to do Star Trek Communicator disservice, but I mean, there was nothing on this scale. And Paramount Pictures was all on board with it, but had absolutely no idea how such a thing would work. And so they hired me to be the liaison between the two companies. And then later they did the same thing for Babylon 5. And so I spent the bulk of uh, four years living in the sets and offices of Star Trek and Babylon 5. Watch, watching TV get made, you know, seeing how the sausage was put together, which was <laughs> fascinating. Left that and went into to an online publishing startup in San Francisco in 2000, which was, uh, you know, ebooks before there were such a thing. Rode that bubble up and down. It crashed and burned, but I ended up knowing tons of science fiction writers. So I parlayed that into some freelance anthology gigs and ended up uh, as the, an editorial director at an adult science fiction and fantasy imprint doing the editing and art directing for a line of books. Edited and art directed about 200 books before I retired last September with my first children's novel. Nice. And so since then, you've been been doing that. But what, what things are you currently working on? Well, I just finished the copy edits on book three. And I am doing very, very preliminary world building for a possible book four and a possible huh. unrelated book in the same world. Okay. Same timeline, same same world, but different country, different characters. For anybody who reads your work, like they can tell that tabletop RPGs and just gaming is something that is important to you and it's it's in your very work i mean you have for each of your books you actually create a game that goes along with them how were you first introduced to tabletop role-playing games to dungeons and dragons to all that good stuff you know i um when i was a preteen, my parents came home with the beginner box it's amazing that they did because this is right in the midst of all the dungeons and dragons demonic hysteria i was gonna say you grew up in the deep south and yeah. it was in the middle of that <laughs> yeah, hysteria it's, it's, so. it's, and we were we were members of a very conservative fundamentalist church as well so you know they bought it and then like two months later they were going you know what have we done have we, yeah, have we, we, we want to take this back from you <laughs> exactly and um too late <laughs> it, it was it was and we we played that thing constantly and this is this is one e no this is this is yeah. first edition and you, I, I don't know if you guys remember the world of Greyhawk with the big oversized map that they had. Oh, yeah. I've, yeah. I've read a lot of the Greyhawk books, so I, I love Greyhawk. Okay. So I, I, we got that giant map that came with the pamphlet. And bless her, my mother helped me laminate. Because I'm a, a nice. complete, uh, I'm, 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 I'm a little OCD when it comes to the condition of stuff. My gaming manuals <laughs> sure. that I have from back then look just like I, they did when I bought them. <laughs> And nice, uh, nice. and we laminated that to a piece of plywood, so that it could not be scratched, bent, folded, wrinkled. And we had this enormous sheet of plywood that she would put in her station wagon, and we would haul over to whoever's house we were gaming at, 
And, and you know, it, it served no purpose. We would just be like, at the start of the game, I would tell the players, okay, today you're going to be on grid number G23 right here. <laughs> and they would look at it for two seconds, like, what does it matter? And then we play the adventure. You know, but, but for that, I have to carry this thing that probably weighed 40 pounds and, and barely fit in the That's car. That's commitment. <laughs> but, it, you know, it just having that map made it real yeah. in a way that it wouldn't if we didn't. And I wish I still had that map. I, I, I keep hoping we'll find it somewhere in the attic or the basement because it, it was the map. You know, it was the thing that yeah. – that that because we didn't have the wealth of stuff that you have now. And so that map, I, it was the only fantasy map I had. I had that. Yeah. I had Thorin's map from The Hobbit, you know, and that was it for <laughs> right. maps. Well, wherever it is, it's in good condition, I'm sure. <laughs> it's in map heaven, I'm afraid. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> along with the whole world of Greyhawk, right? <laughs> yeah, but, pretty um, much. I wish they'd bring that back. Uh, but, maybe, but, maybe. They've been doing a lot of cool stuff lately. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was it. And then I, I, I started, um, uh, we, we, did, we played mostly Dungeons & Dragons. And then we, 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 I was kind of a purist. I was the kid that only read DC Comics, so had no interest in Marvel. You know, only watched Star mm, Trek, so wasn't opposite of Star me. Wars. Oh, you're such and, the opposite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everyone, everyone, everyone's a Marvel person. So everyone, you know, I was a Marvel like, person before, but before see, it the means I love the MCU now because it doesn't bother me when they yeah. screw up the Mandarin because who cares? <laughs> I never read the Mandarin. Yeah. But so in the same way, I played everything TSR came out with. So we had Gangbusters and Star Frontiers and Gamma World and Boot Hill and all the all the TSR games. And I didn't play a lot else beyond them, but I played. I bought every game they put out when they put it out, and then uh, and then discovered Call of Cthulhu, and and, and, and probably the only reason that I've re- played that since it wasn't TSR is because I was already a Lovecraft fan, so right. we didn't play a ton of Cthulhu. Didn't play for a long time. Didn't play in college. Got out of college. Came home for one year and uh, started playing the the James Bond role playing game from Victory Games. Which I don't know if you guys remember that, but it was nope. I have never played it. They had the uh, license to bond, and they put out a ton of product in like a three-year period, and they sold uh, for then it was something like a record hundred thousand copies. Wow. And and then wow, it got, and, I didn't even know it got that big. I know oh, it, it I was know, huge, I've heard of it, but, but I didn't realize it got that big. It was it was a candle that burned bright and quick because Eon sure. Productions yanked the license, hmm. and it just ah. dis- and it disappeared overnight. Somebody listening to your podcast knows a lot more than I do, so I'm sure it was not the first instance of using binnies or fate points or inspiration points mm-hmm. or whatever you want to call them, but it was the first time, I, and I had played a lot of games, it was the first time I had ever encountered the bonus point you got to yeah. spend to affect dice rolls. And and so if, if not the first time that was used in a system, it was certainly one of the most prominent uses of that and one of the early uses of that, and that blew my mind. And then... Uh, uh, went to London, tried to get up a Call of Cthulhu game when I was living in London. Uh, stayed in a dorm with a bunch of Americans who just wanted to complain about eating too many potatoes and they couldn't get a decent <laughs> hamburger. So every day I would walk from Camden Park down to down to like Piccadilly Circus, which is, I'm talking about half the city of London. And right. I would walk down there to the Forbidden Planet store and buy a Call of Cthulhu campaign setting manual or, or adventure and then walk back. And I did that. I, I bought like 20 of those things. It doubled the price since I'm paying pounds for it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't think, I think we played through the beginning of Mask of Nihilarthotep, and that's as far as we got. But I came home with a stack of Call of Cthulhu campaign books. <laughs> and, uh, and so that got, got me through uh, living with all the, the Americans. 
and then um, <laughs> didn't role play for a long time. And and I you know I went into the science fiction fantasy field, and I started to notice the the fact that a lot of my fantasy authors were gamers. Some of them were just avid players. Some of them actually were freelancers working you know quite intimately with the role playing game field. And so I then started noticing that the ones who, I don't want to rank them, but the ones who had like really original ideas or, or a really good grasp of their world seemed to be the ones who also had experience with roleplay. I got very interested in the back and forth between roleplaying games and fiction writing. So I started uh, cultivating relationships in the gaming field and, and cultivating writers who also gamed. You know, there was actually a point where I noticed I knew more people on the any ballot than I did on the Hugo ballot which uh, hmm. was kind of an eye-opening experience for me about where my attention was. I mean, I'd written the first book, and it was being shopped, and I had not sold it, and I built a role-playing game. It was basically my memories of James Bond and Call of Cthulhu smashed together, and in my total ignorance, I probably just reinvented RuneQuest without knowing it. <laughs> and uh, took that to Gen Con, and we ran, a, we ran the game. Uh, Fancy Rare and Howard Andrew Jones did me an amazing favor, which is he said... I want you to be able to play your own game, so if you get the rules to me ahead of time, I'll run the game and you can be a player. Nice. And oh, cool. He let me play in my own system, and I'm at a table with Scott, New York Times bestseller Scott Lynch, uh, Saladin Ahmed, uh, Howard uh, Taylor that writes the Schlock Mercenary comic, hmm. and Dave Gross that writes a lot of Pathfinder Tales novels. And so I'm, we played the game, a table full of fantasy writers. And we, we we played all night. It was wonderful. But that's when I learned, hey, games have evolved quite a bit since yeah. the days of Call of Cthulhu yeah. Second Edition and James Bond. <laughs> you know, and for one thing, people don't like charts anymore. <laughs> you know, looking things up on charts. You if you can't read it from the dice, they don't want to know. So I um I got very excited with Kickstarter and all the things Kickstarters have done for gaming. And I was I'm backing. I've backed about forty Kickstarters so far. That's uh, awesome. Mostly games and mostly stuff I don't have time to play. And uh, backed Numenera and Fate very heavily and have fallen in love with Fate Core for the way that it, uh, not just for its ease of play, but also for the way that it models storytelling. And so I have started running a Fate Core powered game set in the worlds of my books for my son, my nephew, and two of their friends. And we are playing a once a month session and we've played about four or five sessions now and it's an absolute blast. And I'm slowly using that to feel out how my world lends itself to fate on a very slow burn attempt to to create a role playing game set in the world, powered by fate. That's awesome. When you complete that, Lou, and that's uh, all ready to go, Chris and I would love to uh, have you run that for us sometime. <laughs> if I am brave enough to be recorded running it, I will do that. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. <laughs> I might have to twist Howard Jones's arm to run it. Uh, oh, yeah, again. then you can yeah. play it. <laughs> there you go. But it, it, um, and then, you know, there, there's, a, there's a, as you pointed out, I should say, there's a strong gaming component of all the books, which is... Um, in, right. in the first book, there is a, a game called Thrones and Bones, yep. from which the series takes its title. And we can talk more about its development later. But but it the rules for Thrones and Bones are in the back of Frostborn. Mm -hmm. And that was so successful that 
there'll be rules the rules for charioteers are in the back of nightborn and there's a game called queen's champion which you'll have the rules for that in the back of skyborn nice very cool now i have a question for you with those games so um i i think it's really awesome if you go onto your website you can see some of your readers and fans have actually taken like thrones and bones and made their own thrones and bones uh, game sets just from scratch. They've just made these really cool sets. Now, right now, there is no. I can go on to Amazon.com and buy this Thrones and Bones game set. Is that something you want to do, or do you just like the fact that people can just make it themselves? Because there is something nice about the fact that, like, I feel like it's something simple that you can make yourself and seeing all the different. Uh, creations that everybody's making? Yes, to both of your questions. I mean, I, I would like to eventually monetize it. At the same time, right now, I've got kids all over the country and in England making their own sets and sending me the pictures. Yeah. And that'll stop, you know, as soon as there's a commercially mm-hmm. available one. Right. And it's really cool that they can do that. It's it's a, it's one of the bonuses. You know, I've had fathers come to my book signings and say, okay, we made this thing <laughs> last night. Now teach me how to play because he's driving me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I uh, and I've I've also played against kids on tour. You know, I've been at signings and had kids yeah. come and, and, and stick around and play me after the signing, and that's sure. that's been amazing too. You know, to play best two out of three with one of your fans. Yeah. So the answer is one day, but right now I want to I want to keep this thing going. <laughs> awesome, awesome. So we appreciate all that input and just hearing a little bit about like some things you're working on and everything. We have one last question for you, Lou, uh, and this one. Uh, is not one that you knew we were going to be asking, but I hope that uh, we get a really good answer anyway. So uh, if you, Lou Anders, were an adventurer in your own world of Qualth, can you describe to me the adventurer, Lou Anders? Who is he? What does he look like? What is he doing? Tell me about Lou Anders, the adventurer. Wow, you're going to throw me for a loop. (laughs) Um... I'm kind of hoping from this question that... This actually becomes canon, and there is an adventurer <laughs> called Lou Anders walking <laughs> around. <laughs> Wait, what you're asking for is a Mary Sue character. <laughs> yes, um, yes. <laughs> which is when you write yourself in. So, you know, I've always had an affinity for dwarves. Oh, yeah. I hear you there. I, uh, I really, really like dwarves. And I used to do martial arts, and I was not that good at martial arts. But um, <laughs> but I, I, had a, I was fighting in a tournament, and I had a guy say to me, you know, you're not that quick, but you can take, you can take a beating. Yeah. So we're going to do what he called the big and strong. And I mean, let's put this. I was fighting in the senior division. It's not like I was some mixed martial arts cage mm-hmm. fighter or something. Sure. But he said, we're going to do the big and strong strategy. You're just going to let him hit you. Because <laughs> in the in the system I was fighting in, if you don't flinch from the blow, it doesn't count. And so he's like, you just let him land blows on you until he's exhausted. And once you see that he's run out of breath, then you then you hit back, and I won the fight. That nice. I knocked the guy to to on his butt, <laughs> and so I've kind of had an affinity with characters who are maybe not that fast, yeah, but, <laughs> but can take a pound. Yeah, it's very dwarf like. Yeah, so I I'm, I don't I have a shaved head. Um, I don't know if you can tell under my um, my profile pic with the white helmet, but I, I have a sh- very little hair up there, and I shave what there is. And um, uh, my wife hates beards, so I'd be hard-pressed to grow the beard. But I'd love to grow a big beard, keep the shave head, nice. be a dwarf, and maybe a dwarf ranger. Just to, mm. Although I'm probably a magic user, so maybe I'm a dwarven magic user. I don't nice. Know. Very cool, very cool. So uh, hoping to see that appear. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you know, you, you can add him into Skyboard, you know? <laughs> maybe he's somebody's uncle in an upcoming story or something like that. There's a writer named James Ng that I'm very fond of. He 
has a book called uh, The Wolf Age, mm-hmm. where a character's in prison, and he finds uh, uh, a plaque in the prison from a guy named Iacomes as the architect who built the prison. And later in the book, he wanders into this strange house, and there's a guy writing at a desk, and the desk is covered in papers, and... Um, and he has this bizarre conversation with the guy. And the guy's name is Iacomes. And he says, did you build that prison? He goes, I don't know. I've built lots of things. Maybe I did. And the guy says, you know, what world am I on? What, what, what world is this? And the, the house seems to travel from world to world to world. And I got very suspicious. And I looked up Iacomes. And Iacomes is an ancient, I think, Greek spelling of James. <laughs> That's really cool. <laughs> he built the nice. prison because he's the writer. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> That's Awesome. (laughs) Okay, so uh, Lou, we've asked you to come on the show because we thought this would just be a great place to uh, hear about how you built your very own world and the process of that. A lot of our listeners are dungeon masters who are either currently making their own world or are thinking about it and maybe haven't taken that first step. So we thought from from a writer's point of view, someone who's uh, writing books and creating his own world and pulling a lot of inspiration from uh, the real world cultures and mythologies and uh, just we would love to just hear how you built your own world and to give us a little bit of a deeper look into your own world of Quelth? Well, when it started, you know, I mentioned I spent 15 years working in publishing, and I've spent, I've been working in some branch of the science fiction and fantasy field since 1995. So almost all of my friends are authors and writers and game designers and television writers and comic book writers. So when it came time to write my own thing, I was um, horribly intimidated <laughs> <laughs> because I'm up, you know, I'm, I'm going to be offering something out there, and some of the people that are going to read it are some of the best in the business at doing this sort of thing. Yeah. And so I decided that, that if I didn't have the chops, God is in the details. I would just be so thorough that they couldn't criticize. <laughs> and, and, and this is not necessarily the best advice for world building. You know, um, I'm a big fan of Michael Moorcock. Mike is an absolute genius, you know, the creator of the Elric stories. And there's a quote, I'm, I don't remember the exact quote, but Elric is in a certain city enjoying a, an intoxicating beverage, and, and one of the wingless women come up to him. And it's so brilliant, because you go, aren't all women wingless? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> one of the wingless women. <laughs> And, uh, and, and, and so that suggests a whole culture he never explains, Yeah, you know, in a sentence. And I think that if you can get away with it that way, that is the way to do it. That is not the way I did it. Um, <laughs> I spent three months building a world before I had the first inkling of plot. The long and the short of it is, is that back in 2010, I edited a, uh, co-edited a collection called Swords and Dark Magic, which was a, um an anthology of sword and sorcery stories. Both my my heroes, like Michael Moorcock has an Elric story in it, and Glenn Cook is in it, and and, and also some of the, the the younger new names like Joe Abercrombie and Scott Lynch. And so it was a book of, of, of sword and sorcery short stories entirely uh, written by the, the best sword and sorcery story authors there are. And I got inspired and tried to write my own short story about a, a woman who was half giant. Hmm. And it was pathetic. It was horrible. <laughs> uh, it got rejected by the only markets that would publish such a thing, rightfully. 
And I put it aside for years, and I tried to write some other things. And it kept, but the character wouldn't shut up. And I, I knew that there was something there to the character. And uh, I, I wanted very badly to write a female character who was not relegated to the role of sidekick or plot mm-hmm. device, but who could be sure. a kick-butt female character. And I realized that I didn't know who she was and that I really needed to think about her backstory. And she's half-giant, so... Uh, she probably had a pretty miserable childhood if she grew up with giants around people who are twice her size. Mm-hmm. And that's when it hit me that that was the story. The story was not about her as an adult. The story was about her growing up. And so then I put that aside. And now that I had my character, and I started thinking about the world that she would live in. And 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 both for the reasons I outlined previously of, of being intimidated by all my friends who do world building professionally all the time, and also... Uh, I listened to one of your podcasts recently on world building where you said start with an island. And yep. I naively thought, well, I'll pick a Norse culture because it'll be this tiny little corner of the world in this frozen snowbound <laughs> land and it won't affect much else. And I'll, I can just write about that. And if I even can write, because the jury was still out on whether or not I could tell a story, <laughs> then I'll get more complicated in later books. So the first thing I did was I got um, Campaign Cartographer's Fractal Terrains 3 which yep. I wish would run on a Mac. So I'm running boot camp on, a, on, on, my, on my Mac just to run this program and one other. And, uh, and I built the world. And if y'all are familiar with this program or if your listeners are not familiar with it, it's a program that uses fractals to, um, to design a whole planet. Mm-hmm. And, and you go in and you give it parameters. And because I am bad at math and, and have never done this before, I made it an Earth-sized world with the same proportion of water to land mass as we have on earth now you could make a jupiter-sized planet or a moon-sized yep. planet but i thought you know i don't want to sit there trying to do algebra figuring out if if you know the the the, the latitude and longitude of this planet what's the climate going to be relative to a planet a third its size so i um i just chose earth parameters and proportions and then hit go and it generates a world in the blink of an eye and you sit there paging through worlds until you see something that you like but that's not the work done. It's it's just the starting point. And then it gives you a bazillion painting tools where you can go in and sink continents and raise land masses and change climate and change the rainfall. And you can either do it with a brush or you can go, uh, let's select every single thing that's 1,000 feet above sea level. Now, everywhere else, let's raise the rainfall by three inches a year. Mm. You know, so you can do global changes like that around selected areas, or you can do specific things. And I spent three weeks, where all I did for three weeks was massage the landmass until it was exactly what I wanted. Hmm. And uh, one of the, the cheats I had was that you can output it as an FMZ file, which Google Earth will read. And oh, so I spat it into Google cool. Earth. But in Google Earth, you can leave the country borders on. And so what happened was this, this: you get this yellow outline of the countries on our world, and I would superimpose that over my own planet. Huh. And so I could see, you know, they weren't in the same places, but if I need something to be a green and pleasant land like the British Isles, yeah. then I can go and see that it's at the same latitude as actual British Isles. It's not in the same place on the globe. It's not shaped the same, but I know what the latitude and longitude yeah. is. Like Norway, for instance, falls between, I think it's 50 and 53 degrees uh, uh, latitude with the 53 degrees 
and higher being if if being the really really cold part. I probably just completely got that back. <laughs> but but you know the point is I was able to make sure that my Scandinavian esque region fell in the same band as the real one. So <laughs> I didn't accidentally put a jungle next to the North Pole or yeah. or something like sure. that. And so I spent three weeks with the land masses and came up with the entire globe in excruciating detail. I, I spent ages on an Asian continent I may never visit <laughs> um, just because I wanted it to be perfect. And then I picked the tiny, tiny upper northwesternmost portion of the faux European continent, although it's not entirely European, and we can get to that, and, um, and started building their culture. And, uh, you know, one of the hardest things is that every good name has already been taken. <laughs> if it's not yeah, taken by right. Tolkien, it's taken by Skyrim right. and, uh, yeah, right. uh, or Dungeons and Dragons. Yep. So I spent forever just trying to find a name. I wanted something that was one syllable, easy to spell, didn't have a, the cliched hyphen in it. And, uh, and I came up, or I thought I came up with Qualf, Q-U-A-L-T-H. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought, that's cool. It sounds like Earth. It's easy. It's not Earth. You get it. And afterwards, I found out on the Urban uh, Dictionary that Qualf is slang for the fifth cardinal direction. You have north, hmm. south, west, east, yeah. and Qualf, the direction from a map toward the person looking at it. Hmm. That's pretty cool. It's awesome. Fantasy worlds don't yeah. exist if nobody looks at it. Yeah, right. So right. I think it's the best name for a planet ever. <laughs> I did, Yeah, I didn't know that before you said that, and that's, that is probably one of the coolest stories behind a name yeah. I've ever heard. Like, you have, like, Middle Earth and Sky, like, you have those, but when you have Qualth, there's, like, the story behind the story yeah. of that. Like, you're literally pulling that out towards you and being a part of it. That's that's genius. That's so Wait, cool. so you came up with the name Qualth, and then afterwards you yep. found out yep. what it was? I had been using the name, and I thought I'd better Google it and make sure that, that no one else is using it. <laughs> that's and fantastic. Or that it doesn't int- mean something you exactly, didn't Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I just stumbled on that, and I just was so thrilled because it's, it's, it is the perfect it name works, for yeah. a fantasy world. Then I, um, still not thinking about plot, I, I realized I really need to know, because I had written other manuscripts that didn't sell, and previously I had tried to do, the, they, were not, they were not fantasy manuscripts. One was science fiction and one was contemporary urban fantasy. But in both instances, I sort of did the world building as I needed it. So in the science fiction one, I hit the section where I had to decide, do they have artificial gravity or not on their spaceships? Mm -hmm. And then I went away and figured that out. And then, of course, having figured it out, I felt the need to then explain it all on the page in which it occurs, you know, and and you get these horrible, horrible info dumps. And what I've learned about myself as a writer is that the more work I do ahead of time, the less impulse I have to info dump. So if I know this huge thousand-year history... I don't have to put it on the page. If I've just made it up, I'm so proud of it, I want to put it on the page. If I've already done the work before I start writing the book and I come to something, I'll just have a throwaway line. And that throwaway line doesn't really tell you anything but suggests all the stuff in back of it, which makes the world a lot realer than if I'd actually stopped the narrative to give you the history. So I realized I needed another culture. So I, I took the Norse culture and history and I started looking at Norse history, and I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll use the actual Norwegian timeline as a loose basis. And that way, if you know, I, I want to have a massive global famine one year, and then I have them conquer their neighbors in the next, I won't put those two events unrealistically next to each other. Mm-hmm. 
you know, or maybe the one drove the other. But I just figured that if I if I looked at the rhythms of real world history, the ups and downs of real world history, then I wouldn't have somebody spring out of nowhere and become a superpower. I, I wouldn't have cultures accomplishing unrealistic things in constrained timelines. And so I started looking at actual Viking history. And of course, as soon as I got to the Viking period of Norse history, because Viking is not a noun, it is a verb, which means to you, you go Viking. When I hit that, I, I was like, oh my gosh, they went everywhere. They fought the British, they attacked the French, they sacked Paris, they went to Constantinople, they went to Russia. The whole reason we have the word slave is because they thought Slavs made the best slaves. Hmm. Huh. They, they, yes, that's what it comes from. Slavic slave. Huh. They would, they, they would go to Russia constantly and, 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 and raid for slaves. And then they would drag the slaves down to the edge of Arabia and sell them to the Arabians. And, and it, 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 so they were everywhere and they underpin every European culture and some non-European cultures. They fought with Inuits and Native Americans. Yeah. And so in each instance, when I would butt up, up against the the Vikings encountering some neighbor, I then needed to know what my world's equivalent of the neighbor was. And the result was that I spent three months and had a, a file that at the time was about 40,000 words with about 23 countries mapped out to varying degrees. Their nearest neighbors are mapped out in the most detail. You know, their father's neighbors and just where they were encountering them. But I had, uh, I had, I had built whole other countries. And again, I haven't even thought about plot. And also doing the timeline, you you had to I had to come up with a creation myth, and and a pantheon of gods, and so I did that. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Once again, following the Norse mythology, I'm assuming. Well, yes and no. Um, I didn't want the Norse gods, and I didn't want a Norse creation myth because this is um, this is a different world that is sure. Norse-ish. But it's not the okay. Norse. And um, and so like one thing too is just coming up with a name for the people. The country is called Norengard. Although if you were to say it, I have a friend in, in, in Norway who coaches me on pronunciation. So the O with the line through it that's so distinctly Scandinavian is actually pronounced like a U in burn or rune. And their D's are soft and their R their double R's roll almost Spanish like. So the way they would say the country's name, let me gather my breath, is uh, <laughs> We're lazy and yeah, exactly. <laughs> so but I, I you know I searched for again between Tolkien and Skyrim, all the names for Norsemen are taken. And I finally came up with Noron, which is uh, another word for North. And so the Norungard, Norinholm, North home is basically how it would translate. There's a, a, a fabulous program called the Ever-Changing Book of Names. It was built, I think, maybe 10 years ago by a guy who was a role player who hated stupid names in fantasy games mm -hmm. <laughs> and hated the name generators that, that just spit out nonsense. And so he built a program uh, where he uses mathematical algorithms to convert consonants and vowels into binary code and then scrambles it and produces things that follow the same pattern. So if you want an Italian-like country, but you don't want to use names like Leonardo and Michelangelo and Donatello, you type in 50 to 100 
names and it scrambles it and it produces things that sound like they come from that culture but they don't hmm. and the other genius of the program is that you can put in two different cultures and scramble them together huh. so if you want to have a, a, a you know a, a italian culture that conquered an aztec culture and you want to know what people would be called a hundred years later you can run this program now it's only on windows it's shareware it's old and I'm terrified at some point it won't, <laughs> it won't run on anything anymore. Right now, I, I'm, I'm running it on boot camp on my wife's computer because it won't even run on mine anymore. And, and I'm horrified of the day in which it won't work. If I had a genie in a bottle, one of my wishes is just that somebody would kickstart a Mac version of this program you know, with permission. Because I, I don't think the guy that built it is, has done anything on it in years. And one day, it's going to quit working for me. So the next thing I did is I went and sourced every name of every town that I could find from Scandinavia. I was looking for Viking place names. And the problem with that is, is that you get Scottish Viking place names, you get Russian Viking place names, you get Germanic Viking place names. And I didn't want that. I wanted Viking Viking place names. And, you know, <laughs> uh, again, and this is, this is back during the time when I'm, I'm still kind of coming to terms with the fact that, that role players make the best writers. And uh, it's all part of that, that process, that learning curve for me. So what I found was that there were some people who played Civilization, and they wanted to know Viking Viking names. And so this guy had put together a list of 100 Viking Viking cities. And you know, that's when I was like, oh, gamers are the best researchers. <laughs> if you want something, odds are someone in a, in a, in a, some role player has already sourced this for you. And, uh, and so I scrambled, and I got these names. Now, now, someone said to me, so you just let the computer tell you what the name. And I'm like, no. First of all, I spent like all day long sourcing 100 Viking names. Then I spit out maybe 200, of which I chose five. Yeah, it wasn't just you did the first five that came up. Hey, cool, we're good to go. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and so it's, you know, you're using the tools to create the names, but you're putting in a lot of work and you're also doing a lot of selection, which names you type in, which names you select. But I came up with stuff like uh, Herkeby, Nilmgard, Oslindholm, Sidholm, Umsberg, Windholm, Arvik, Binsa. And they're great. They're great. Mm -hmm. And uh, I did it, you know, I mentioned building their cultures. The, I, I have a culture next door called Ireland, which is uh, neither Scotland nor Ireland, but is a, a similar post-Celtic culture. Gotcha. You know, it's, it's a culture that's in its high Middle Ages now, but it came from a Celtic root. And so it's not Scotland or Ireland, but it's, it's a third type of culture on a parallel world. And for that, I typed in every single city in, in Ireland and Scotland and scrambled them. And I got marvelous results that you would never come up with if you busted your head against the table all day long. I have a city called Doddleford, and I have a city called uh, Wigan-on-Crane. Yeah, you're not going to think and, of that just off the, off yep. the top of your head. There's no way. <laughs> and, you know, Wigan-on-Crane, I know it exists somewhere. But That's it's one of those things that you still put in the work for, and it sounds awesome. And people will be like, oh, oh yeah. what was that city's name again? Oh, yeah, that's right. We remember it. You know, Stratford-on-Avon, Wigan-on-Crane. And I've had a lot of fun mixing cultures that way, too. So a lot of my names come from that program. And then other times, on they don't. You know, other other names, I'm, like Norungard didn't come from that. It came from the, the Norse, one of the Norse words for north with the Norse word for farm. That's how a lot of the naming conventions come up. And I did the same thing for first names male, most common first names female, and, and surnames. 
And then gotcha. I use whatever naming convention I'm basing the culture on. So, for instance, for the Norse, they use patronomics and matronomics like uh, son and daughter. You know, uh, my main boy character is Karn Corlundsen, mm -hmm. which is the son of Corlunda. You know, there's a scene in the book, the giants don't use that. So there's a scene in the book where, where they meet Fiona for the first time and and she's the daughter of Magnolmir and they call her Magnolmir's daughter and she doesn't know what they're talking about because they don't use, the giants don't use matronomics. And they just have their name, right? That's, yeah, yeah, just, just first name. Yep. That's it. That's all you yep. need. And, uh, and, and so then I did all that. And then I got to the gods. And again, I didn't want, um, I didn't want to use the gods that we use. Uh, I wanted to have their own gods that maybe filled similar roles, but weren't the same. So we have Arvimnir, the High Father, Balangir, God of Daytime, Dar, God of War, Kavir, God of Luck, Vesa, Goddess of Summer, Mana, Goddess of the Moons, stuff like that. And their their creation myth I've never published, but it's different from ours. There there's a the world is entirely rock. It, the universe is entirely rock. And at a certain point, the weight of all that rock, the pressure of all that rock creates sentience. And the first frost giant, Ymir, is born. And he wants room, so he stands up and he pushes the vault of heaven up and the floor of the earth down and holds the world. And in, in that strain, his armpits sweat, and from the sweat of his armpits come the first of the gods. Huh. And uh, eventually they want to kill their father because that's what God's doing. Right, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and so they fire a, uh, they lob a, a, a fireball at him. And he um, bats it away with one arm. And it flies up into the sky and becomes the sun. The sparks that come off of that get stuck in the vault of heaven and become stars. And other sparks fall to earth. And when they fall to earth, attracted by the heat of it, these worms come up out of the earth. And uh, they they swallow the sparks as they fall, and of course they're the dragons, and that's how they got the the fire in their belly. Gotcha. <laughs> and uh, and they eventually do slay Ymir, and when they slay Ymir, he becomes the Ymirian mountain range. Huh. And that's out sweet. of his corpse, the, the the dwarves and the giants are born. The gods uh, they make men, but then they but they they regret it. And Neth, she decides to give intelligence to humankind, and for that the gods slay her. And so she is now in Neth's cave under the earth. And when we die, we go to Neth's cave to be with our foster mother, the one who, who bequeathed us with intelligence. And you put like a hundred creation stories into a generator and got that too, right? No. <laughs> that I just generated. That I just generated. And it, uh, I wish there were such a thing, man. Because I'm trying to work on my, my Arlish faux Celtic creation right now, and it's tough. You know, I and I and I have a, a pet peeve in fantasy world creation, which is that I don't like when things exist in a vacuum. You know, I hate the whether it's a book or a game or a movie where you you open it up and it's like here's the map of the village, here's the spooky woods, and here's the mountain where either the witch or the wizard or the dragon lives, and there's no sense that they've ever interacted with any neighbors. The real world's not like that. It's it's not like that at all. Now, on the flip side, my other pet peeve is when you, like, a classic dungeon delve where you're, like, going through the dungeon or dungeon crawl and you're, like, there's a dragon in this room, there's a mummy in this room, there's a <laughs> troll in this room, there's a lizard man in this room, and you're, you're like, there's just no thought. There's no consistency whatsoever. Yes. completely you know. random. And I thought that was an old school problem, but I just opened up a, a, a module, somebody, I won't say who, somebody wrote recently, and it's, that, that's exactly what happens. 
And, and so I had this sort of a rule that the monsters would occur in their environments. So in Norngard, you get trolls and draug. You know, in, in Escarain, you get gargoyles. But you're not going to find gargoyles in Norngard. You're not going to find draug in Escarain. Uh, you're not going to find mummies outside of Neteru. Uh, you know, unless someone has deliberately brought a mummy, because that's a great plot line. But it's not in my top ten. But, uh, you know, so, so I, I want the, the, the monsters to exist in their appropriate ecologies. Uh, at the same time, nothing exists in isolation. You know, there's a, in, in, in our own world, um, uh, and I, I listened to you guys' world building uh, podcast on Pantheons recently, and I thought it was brilliant. You have so many wonderful ideas, particularly when you talk about when a god dies. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm going to take issue with one thing one of you said, <laughs> and that is that if you were dealing with like a Greek setting, you would only have Greek gods and nothing else. And that is not true. There is actually a god that was worshipped, I think, by early Berbers in North Africa who was the child of an Egyptian deity and a Greek deity. Hmm. The Egyptian god and the, Greek, and, the, and the Greek god had gotten it on together and had a kid. And the kid was both worshipped in North Africa and incorporated into i think it was the greek pantheon as well and and so you actually had gods from separate pantheons procreating and spawning new gods who were worshipped by third peoples i've done some study on ancient uh religions and things and i wonder if it's because people saw their gods as like a localized type thing like they didn't necessarily leave the area most times maybe there was some sort of because Greece and Africa aren't that far away, so maybe there was some sort of crossbreeding there, and that's how that happened. So, Well, yes, and also, you know, I mean, when Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, he was looking back on centuries of Greek culture. Sure. And, you know, every city had its own god, and he was going, let's, let's unify this into one cultural narrative mm-hmm. in the same way that Sir Thomas Mallory was looking at a thousand years of Arthurian romances and going, we need to create the definitive Arthur, Arthur story. Or more recently, you know, uh, Alan Burnett and Paul Denny did with the Batman animated series. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're going. We have sixty years of Batman comics to work with at the time. Let's. How are we gonna? How are we gonna make sense? Of they're taking a little bit from the TV, the Adam West TV show, and a little bit from the Tim Burton movies, and a little bit from Frank Miller, and a little bit from Denny O'Neill, and a little bit. From, <laughs> and they're putting it all into a cohesive narrative. So, so you you know you you, you never had these discrete entities to begin with. Um, I love in Norse mythology the the gods, the Asgardians, are divided between the Aesir and the Vanir. Uh, Thor is Aesir, Himdal is Vanir, and they say in their mythology, we don't know where the Vanir came from. One day these Vanir people showed up and they attacked the Aesir people and they fought for a while, and then they admired each other so much they said, why don't we quit fighting and just be one big happy family? Hmm. And so the Norse gods themselves, it's built in that there are two types of gods. One came from Asgard, <laughs> which is Thor and Odin, etc. And the other, we don't know where they came from. They came from somewhere else at some point in the past and joined us after a period of conflict, like all superheroes do when they meet. And, uh, and so, you know, clearly there were two tribes at some point who warred and then intermarried and then combined their religions. And, and it's been codified that way. And then finally, you know, Odin himself becomes Woden in Germanic religion. And you have Wodenism. Uh, going around Europe, which has almost nothing to do with its Norse roots. Sure. And so I love the give and take of things. Um, my character carries a sword called Whitestorm, uh, my, 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 my yep. boy character. The sword was actually built by a—it was forged by, by elves and dwarves for a officer, a general in an empire that no longer exists. 
Hmm. It then made its way to my Ar- to Arlen, where it was the Excalibur for a a um, a kind of female King Arthur figure. It is then found by one of Karn's ancestors, and by the time it makes its way to him, it's basically just a well-made sword. Sure. It's, it's 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 batteries have run down because it's a thousand years old, but it's 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 uh, it's you know it's out of juice. But in the second <laughs> book, there's a scene where the dragon. Uh, sniffs at him and says, "That sword is not one of mine, but it has a more it has a more inter- storied history than you know." And that's the only line. It has a more storied in- history than you know. But the reason I was able to write that line is I have a file somewhere where I have the complete thousand year history of the sword. I was gonna say it's going back <laughs> to what you talked about, where you can drop that exactly. one line, and it's just people just assume, "Oh, there's a huge history behind it. You don't need to go and yep. explain it all." And, and and you should, right? Because you'll slow the narrative down and bore them to death. And you get a thousand, you know? fifteen hundred word or fifteen hundred page novel, and that's not what you want. You get a, a giant info dump that stops the action. But the, but but I couldn't have written that line about the sword if I didn't know it, right. because it wouldn't have occurred to me to do so. So that's some of how I do it. And then finally, too, I uh, when I was an editor, I I had an author named Aaron Hoffman, and who is also a big wig in the video game industry, to to. There, there you go again. And Aaron, um, <laughs> she, we, we bought a trilogy from her, and she said, "Lou, I'm gonna, I'm gonna commission a map for you." I said, "Aaron, we, we do the maps." And she goes, "No, no, I'm gonna commission my own map." And I said, uh, "You know, Aaron, I, 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 you don't have to do that. Maps aren't really that expensive. We always put a map in our fantasy books if the author wants one. I'll do your map." And she goes, "No, you don't understand. I want to own my map. I will do the map." And so I let her do it, but I, I felt kind of bad that everybody else got a map for free, <laughs> and she actually, you know, the, the adage, money's not supposed to flow right away from the writer, it's supposed to flow to the writer, <laughs> and, you know, she shouldn't have to pay for her map, but she insisted. Well, my book sold, and they said, uh, is there going to be a map? Uh, do you need a map? And the first thing that went through my head is, I don't, Aaron's a genius. I don't want them handing me a map and me going, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And they're going, well, we, you know, this is the map, live with it. So, you know, because they're going to they're gonna commission it, it's going to come in, and they're not going to spend a lot of time massaging it. I'm going to own my map. So <laughs> I called up Robert Lazaretti, who does a lot of the Pathfinder maps and used to work at TSR. And uh, I said, and I hired him to do my map. And he and I have now done seven maps together. One of the most incredible, I probably moments of my professional life. While I was doing the rewrite on book one, I got to go to Norway. That would be cool. It was amazing, and so I spent every day exploring Norway, and then I would go back at night and log on and send him photos. And so he was doing the map while I was in Norway, and I was sending him pictures of fjords and mountaintops yeah. and landscapes, and and going, let's add this in. And it was just, it was an incredible experience for both of us. And so that map, that first map got shaped by interacting with the cartographer while I was actually in the country it's modeled That's on. pretty cool. When the, we did the second book, uh, you know, I had this, I told you I had, I had this file, which is now up to like 60,000, 70,000 words of world building. And uh, I had submitted some ideas for books two and three. And my editor said, um, you don't really like those. What else you got? And it's, it's amazing that they were willing to buy books two and three not liking my proposal for what they would be. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I hope speaks to the strength of book one. Yeah. <laughs> so I was 
I'm like, well, I've got tons. I've got all these countries. And I'm like, I've got, you know, this stuff going on over here. I've got this stuff going on over there. I've got this stuff going on over there. And, you know, like my, my Arlish country, I've got a 5,000-year history going back to their creation myth with all my naming conventions in place and their gods and goddesses and, and a bit of, you know, all of that. And they didn't want anything there. As I said, it was every culture that abutted with the Vikings. And so I get to the far easternmost corner of the continent. And, and I think it was actually my agent said, we got to find something for your editor. So what's over here? I said, well, I don't really know. I have a kind of Constantinople-like city that's under siege at the moment from a sort of orcish Ottoman Empire. Hmm. And he goes, ooh, that's cool. Let's do that. And so he pitches that to my editor. And she's like, yes, that's the yeah. one I want. And I'm like, whoa, wait, wait, I got 60,000 words <laughs> with histories and names and every, all of 23 <laughs> countries. And over here, I just got, there's a sort of. You have a, you have a like sense. I kind of got an idea. I had, exactly. <laughs> yep, yep, that's what we want. So I taught myself everything there was to know about the fall of Constantinople in 1452 and rapid built that culture. And, um, you know, one of the, the, the things that happened that was fun is that um, when I was in, uh, Norway, I, I was actually, my, my parents were actually there. The, my father's in poor health. It was the last trip he was ever able to take. And so hmm. one reason, you know, my wife very kindly let me go for nine days without her and the kids and spend some time with the family and research. And uh, so my mother and I are walking up a hill by a waterfall. And I said, Mom, we got to be careful because up here on the left, there's going to be a bandit's cave and they're going to come out and attack us. And over here on the <laughs> right is where my horse fell over the cliff and died. And she's like, what are you talking about? And I was like, I'm sorry, this is Skyrim. I've been here. This is, this is, this is, this is in Skyrim. And, uh, you know, I, I, I went back and I was so afraid that I was going to have to do a description pass on my book and change all my description because it wasn't going to be accurate to what I'd seen. And what I found out that, is that I had nailed the description. The only thing I had left out is that there are a lot of red berries. And that's the only thing I had to change. And I added the red berries in. And my editor cut them back out on the next pass. Uh, making the whole trip to Norway <laughs> pointless, but um, but I had actually gotten the, the the unique Norwegian landscape perfect, and the reason was is because I had played about 150 hours of Skyrim. Yeah, <laughs> and they had gone and done their own photo reference, and mm -hmm. and I had internalized the landscape so well that I had written it unconsciously. And so one of the things I did when I found out I had to write about Constantinople is I typed in the Google video games Constantinople. And Assassin's Creed Revelations mm -hmm. came up. It's uh, set in Istanbul 50 years after the fall, which is close enough it wouldn't have changed yeah. that much. And so I played through the whole of Assassin's Creed Revelations um, to internalize what Constantinople looked like, what Istanbul looks like. And in the city of Constantinople, the, they have the triple wall or the, that, that held against multiple, multiple, multiple sieges. But there's an aqueduct that comes through the city, and there's also a river that flows through the wall, flows for two quarters of the city, then spills underground and then empties out into the ocean. And I could not find anything in any book, in any Wikipedia entry, in any, you know, I, I, I went to libraries and I went everywhere trying to figure out what the river looked like when it went through the wall and when it went underground yeah. because I knew the walls were impregnable, but a river coming through, isn't that a Yeah, that, that would plan? be a weak spot. I mean, look at Helm's yeah. Deep in Middle Earth. <laughs> Exactly. And then finally, when it, when it went underground, did it go into a building? Did it spill into a lake? Was there a well? Was there a waterfall? What was there? And after 
you know, a week or two of fruitlessly searching online, I'm like, wait a minute, you know, uh, Ubisoft has a lot more money for research than I do. I bet <laughs> they know. And so I went into the game one day and I found the river and it took me an hour. But I walked, I just ignored everybody. And I just walked to one end of the river and saw where it went underground. I walked to the other end of the river and saw where it came to the wall. And I called up Lazaretti and said, okay, I know what the, I know what it looks like now. <laughs> so, and uh, we need a gate where the river is. And we need a square building where it goes underground. And, uh, and so I'm a big, big believer of, uh, of, in, in video gaming to internalize landscapes you can't afford to travel yeah, to. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. That's something I've never thought about, but that's pretty fantastic. Well, that's I got into a, really, <laughs> a, a problem with that with book three, because book three is set yeah. in a Grecian environment but it's a Grecian environment that's reached its high middle ages without being Christianized. And there isn't anything like sure. that. Um, and, uh, and so I, I did, and there aren't as many video games set in Greece, which is really interesting. There's, you know, the God of War type things, but that's not really a sandbox city adventure. Yeah. So, or, so I, my, my, I was not able to do it for that. And if I, and one <laughs> of the things I may write next is Egyptian and there's a, a real lack of Egyptian video games too yeah so you know developers get working fast come on assassin's creed come out with more games and <laughs> exactly. in locations Lou exactly. i just picture needs. you sitting on your couch in front of your tv and just holding your control in the hand and just like yelling at your tv like come on come on but, there's nothing absolutely absolutely <laughs> and but you know the flip side of all this too is it is it like the other thing i did for for the vikings there's a lecture series called the great courses and typically they're just some professor from some college that they've put in a little room and set up with a podium and he stands at the podium and he speaks to you for 30 hours. And I got the great courses Vikings. And that's what it was. It was a guy standing behind a podium lecturing with very few visual aids and no audience for 30 hours of tape. Holy smokes. And, uh, you know, my wife was like, I'll watch this with you. And she sat down and two minutes in, she's like, this is the most boring thing I've ever seen in my life. I am out of here. So I watched that on my lunch hour every day because I had a day job. Then on my lunch hour every day for 15 days. And because uh, I only did half of it because once they got Christian, I didn't, I didn't need to go past the sure. high ages. But I, I, I sat through 15 or 20 hours of the great courses on the Vikings. And on the one hand, it was dead boring. And on the other hand, it was brilliant, you know. <laughs> Uh, stuff you would just never find out when you're drilling at that level of detail, and so uh, I, you know, I really recommend. So it's you know, half my research is playing video games. The other half of my research is really grinding away at some pretty dry material. But you know, history is such a minefield of you know, because you steal from another author, that's theft. You mm-hmm. steal from history, that's fair game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Lou, just from like listening to your creation, like the way that you created your world, I think there's a real gem of wisdom here for our listeners who are in the process of creating their worlds or haven't started but would like to get a start. And just from hearing you talk, it's you come at pretty much everything with this questioning aspect of why is this this way? Even like listening to the origin story of how uh whether it's like actually the way it was with gods creating the world or whether it's just this specific people group and coming up with this is how we believe that the world was created um it all like answers the question of like why is this this way like why do the fire the dragons have fire in their belly why are these people 
living in this area. Well, it's because of this, and it's because of this. And sometimes the answer is the thing that you come at first, and you go, okay, well, what is the question, and how do I build on that and build on my lore? And I think I think that is just something that's really i mean you even said about the <laughs> the dungeons like you can't stand it when you're like you're going through a dungeon in a D like game and it's like why is this thing and this thing in the same dungeon it just doesn't make sense and just making sense of stuff and making it it all work together to fit inside a a cohesive world and i think that's just such a great um thing to glean from from this discussion and something that our listeners who are building their own world should really take note of and, and ask themselves, why, why is this this way? I think asking why is, you know, they used to say that, that, that science fiction, I forget who it was. Was it Theodore Sturgeon? He had a Q with an arrow and, and that was his symbol for ask the next question. Hmm. And I said, whatever you do, always ask the next question. When I built the, the, the Greek, the Grecian country is called Thika. And like I said, it's like Greece, but it's in its high Middle Ages without having ever been Christianized. And it's massive. It's more like an Australia-sized continent. The, this isn't a, much of a spoiler. There's a, there's a horn that factors in the first three books that allows you to control yep. reptiles. Right. I was working with Lazaretti, and I'm working with him on the continent map, which includes this, the, the, the island continent of Thika and then the major continent of Caternia. And that's all we're looking at, right? Because we're just, we focus. And the great thing, too, about working in Campaign Cartographer, we, he doesn't work in that. I did the Fractal Terrains map in Campaign Cartographer, Fractal Terrains 3. I will go into that. I will take a cross-section of it. And I will send it to Laz as a reference. And I can tell him exactly what the, the exact distances is between any two points on the map. And I can tell him what the temperatures and, and elevations and things are. And then he takes that and he hand-draws a map. But I'm able to give him very specific uh, information going in when he's creating. So I had given him the section of this continent and the island continent. And so we did all this detail. And then I went back and looked at my world map. And I realized that I have a, 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 an Indian continent, a Hindu culture, right next to my Greek culture. The, and that they had existed alongside each other for 5,000 years with no interaction whatsoever. The reason I hadn't thought to do them is that I, they weren't on the piece of paper. They weren't on the, the, the screen <laughs> I was looking at. And when I looked at the big screen, I'm like, oh, my gosh, they're side by side. I, I have to account for why they yeah. haven't interacted. And uh, it forced me. I, I went back into history, and I found that Alexander the Great had attacked India. He had gotten pretty deep in and was winning when his army got superstitious, I think, at the sight of elephants, but maybe confusing things. Hmm. And, um, and they mutinied and forced him to retreat, even though he was winning. So in, in my world, uh, Thika is a matriarchy, and there's a female Alexander character, and she led an attack on the Indian culture, and she was winning when her army mutinied, and they fled. But the powers that be behind the Hindu culture are Naga. Interesting. Serpent people. Uh. And when they heard they had this horn, they were terrified that the Thikums would find out they were reptiles. Ah. So they never pursued. And so they never pursued. And we have a, well, it's, a, it's, a, it's like Archimedes' death ray, giant parabolic mirrors that surround the coast and prevent people from coming in. And they built, but they later get conquered by another empire, the Gordian Empire. And so I also need a reason why they were able to be conquered since they have all these death rays lining their coasts. And mm -hmm. what happens is they, the, 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 the female... Alexander figure gets back to Thika, expects a retaliation that never comes, 
and commissions the building of the death rays entirely on the eastern coast. So they're then unprepared for the empire that comes in from the west. And it's only after that empire is eventually collapses and they rebuild their own empire that they finish the job and line the, the mirrors on the western coast. But, you know, a lot of times looking at what's next to each other and going, why haven't these two people interacted or how did they interact or why would they interact or why wouldn't they interact then suggests and dictates point of story. Your advice about starting on an island really sounds better now because <laughs> you, can, you can see what happens when you don't start on an island. In our discussions about world building, we've always said there are two methods. There is the small to big, which is the start on an island, and then as you go on, like you keep building out and building up. And, and I, I think for some people who are just starting out D&D and they're not even sure if it's a right fit for them, starting small to big is a good choice. But then some people are just, they know they want to do it. And the big to small, this is a great example of like knowing your world. And there's absolutely great, great pros to that of knowing like when a player asks you, and we've talked about this before, like a player asks you, in, in character, they ask you about a certain place. Well, if you have worked on that place, and even though your PCs haven't visited it, you can give an educated answer, and you can say, well, this and that, and you can talk about history. And the more, the more you know about your world, the more that's going to show when you run your game and you uh, have your PCs going through your world, and it just adds so much to it. So, I mean, either way is absolutely a viable option it's all about the individual like what do you want to do as a as someone creating a homebrew world and running a game in it yes and it, it you know my one of my literary heroes as i mentioned before is michael morcock and mm -hmm. I, he's just an absolute genius and morcock despises maps and excessive world building there's a book which is out of print but would be valuable to hunt down called death is no obstacle and it is a book-length interview with Michael Moorcock about the process of world creation. And hmm. it, it breaks my heart today. A lot of people don't even know who Moorcock is. You know, when I was young, you had a shelf of Tolkien and a shelf of Moorcock yeah. in every bookstore. Sure. And he is almost completely forgotten now. Uh, certainly not known by younger people. But he, a lot mm -hmm. of people don't know, he, um, he t at a pretty young age, in the late 60s, early 70s, I think, late 70s, early 70s, he took on the, uh, the uh, New World's magazine which was a science fiction magazine in Britain, but it was published as part of a, of a trilogy of magazines that included the New Statesman, their big political magazine, and I think a magazine called New Britain, which was a cultural magazine, but I may have the title wrong. And so even though it was science fiction and fantasy, it was seen as being part of this triumvirate of prestigious magazines. And he and J.G. Ballard and M. John Harrison and Brian Aldiss uh, decided that science fiction was at a dead end, literary fiction was at a dead end, and the two forms could benefit from from cross-pollination and they started what was called the new wave experiment where they did a lot of really really experimental and a lot of it frankly unreadable um <laughs> uh, attempts to revitalize science fiction but they were one of the first people to deal with uh, you know the war in vietnam with with issues of sexuality with with uh, all kinds of things that drug use that that traditional science fiction wouldn't touch and uh, in a very real way they grew the genre up they, it was pretty funny. They were they were hauled up before Parliament on obscenity charges the same week they received an Arts Council grant for contributions to literature, hmm. which tells you how volatile and controversial it was. And while he was doing that magazine, he was writing hack and slash sword and sorcery stories to pay for it because they were they were 
there were attempts on the part of the publishing industry to sabotage it. And uh, I, I won't go into some of those details because I don't know whether they're public or not. But he was having to use his own money to keep it afloat. And, and he wrote very little science fiction himself, but he changed the science fiction field for all time. And so he was writing this sword and sorcery fiction and then cashing the checks immediately to keep the magazine afloat. By the way, just huh. as an aside, he was also performing on stage with rock bands like Blue Archer Cult and Hawkwind and Iron Maiden. <laughs> and, uh, and also he was, he's the one who coined the term multiverse, which hmm. every quantum physics scientist uses today to describe yeah, the real we've talked about. Yeah, we've talked about multiverses on our show yeah. many so, times. I mean, he and you know is a primary influence on Dungeons and Dragons, and, and you mm-hmm. know you, you you go into Skyrim and you craft yourself a black sword that sucks health or souls from someone else. You owe that to Michael Moorcock. You know he he he's almost all but forgotten. But if you went back in time and shot him, the whole video game industry and the role playing game industry would look radically different if it existed at all. You know, not to mention yeah. quantum physics and rock and roll. So he's doing all this, and he has this formula for how to write a book in three days. And now, mind you, a book back then was 60,000 words, about half the length of a book today. But he could do it in three days. (laughs) And he talks about it in this book, Death is No Obstacle. And what he would do is, and I think this is applications for gaming, is he would make a list of contradictions, like the city of screaming statues, the blank mirror, you know, the the Mm -hmm. sea of stones, you know, whatever. And then he would just start writing. And... Every three pages, he would look at his list of contradictions and pick one and drop it in. (laughs) And when he felt that the story had reached a certain length that it was time to wrap things up, he would then look toward the first quarter of the book and find a character that had come through and bring that character back at the end and explain that they were actually a more powerful wizard or god or whatever than they had at first supposed when you met them the first time they were in hiding. And they would provide this third act solution to wrap up the story. And he found he could write a story in three days that way. And I think that, you know, you could come up with just a list of encounters or a list of cool items and just drop it in every five to ten minutes in your campaign. And when you got toward the end of your campaign, pick something from the beginning and bring it back for a sense of closure and, and, and continuity and wrap it up. <laughs> and you could probably dispense with all of this obsessive world building yeah, by yeah. doing that. And I'd love to be that kind of writer. I'd love to write a novel in three days, but I'm definitely of the Tolkien variety. You know, when I was younger, I heard a guy talk about how he started with weather patterns. And I was just like, you complete fool. You, 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 you're, you're talking about weather patterns. Who cares about weather patterns? And, uh, and, I, I, and unfortunately, that's, that's some <laughs> karma because you know, um, I'm fascinated now with the, with the, tra- the, with the, with the, with the <laughs> Pathfinder role-playing game supplement that shows all the trade and migration routes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I want you to, are that guy I want, now. Um, I'm There's that guy. I want to. I want to yeah. get. Do, you fool. <laughs> yes, yes. It's, and I'm. Uh, uh, I'm totally. I totally want to work out the the what the 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 wind patterns on my world. Back to when I was starting to get into gaming again, as an avenue into fiction. It was the campaign settings that would pull me in the most. I'm. I'm. I just love the world of of Glorian for Pathfinder. They have so much on that. It's so detailed. And I'm also, shout out to Wolfgang Barr and Cobalt Press because Midgard is beautiful. They're, the Midgard <laughs> campaign setting is one of the most beautiful campaign setting books I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, I, I back Numenera because the Ninth World campaign setting is just gorgeous. And I can't wait for November when they release the Sword Coast campaign setting that Green Ronin is doing for Dungeons & Dragons. Can't yeah. wait for that. Going to buy that the day it drops. And, you know, again, the RPG world building is just so dense it's so beautiful and and um 
and that's my love, clearly. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the series is called Thrones and Bones. <laughs> and in the first book, we're introduced to Karn, who is a young boy who plays this game, Thrones and Bones, which like at first glance, when you see like pictures of it, it looks like a very strange chessboard. Tell us a little bit about the creation of Thrones and Bones, why you wanted to, where did you come up with this idea of I want a game for each book and just what influenced you in that? You know, the whole story started with the idea of a girl who was half Frost Giant. And the reasons for that were that, with apologies to Harry Potter, um, <laughs> which I love, by the way, I love Harry Potter, but, but I was tired of fiction where the girl was the sidekick, where the girl was the cautious one, or the magical one, or the studious one. And the boys got to be the dummies who got to do all the fighting. You know, Hermione is all three of those things. She's cautious, she's studious, and she's the best at magic. Right. And or at least she's the best at studying about magic. Right. Harry has innate innate magical ability, but he's not as studious as, as Hermione. And I love Hermione. I love yeah. the Harry Potter books. It's not a, that's not a, but, but that that's been apes now in a lot of things. So you have this pattern of guy with a sword, girl with a wand, and uh, that shows up in a lot of, of books. And I, I didn't want that. I wanted my girl to be the one who kicked down the door and busted heads together while the boy hung back and said, you know, there, there was a back door we could have crept through and we could have avoided all this fighting, you know? Oh, which is so much like them in this, in your, in your book, yeah. Frostborn. Yeah. So, so she was born first and I wanted her, I wanted to show her in her element. And so the Vikings had a real game they played called Knatliker, Knatliker. And it was basically rugby with baseball bats played by Vikings. There were no rules. You just played until uh, only one person was left standing, and their team won. And, and I do not want to play this game. Oh, people died. They would play for a oh week and a Lou half. Lou would be good would at die. it. So he can take a beating. No, no, and just uh... Uh, not not with a baseball bat. Yeah. And uh, and so you know, dwarf Lou Anders. Yes, yes, dwarf Lou Anders would be good at it. So when we started, um, they when I started the book, I, I throw her in playing that like her against giants to give you an idea of who she is. And, you know, she's the stubborn one. She's the athletic one. She's the one that's very forceful. And so I, I needed a boy character to, to play off of that. And I wanted the boy character to be the intelligent one, the clever one, the cautious one. But I didn't want him to be the boring one. Right. And so I wanted to give him a passion that he could be passionate about as much as she was passionate about sports and snow skiing and all the physical activities she does. And, and so I... I found out that the Vikings played a board game in real life, and they were very passionate about it. In fact, they, they had a saying that you weren't a man until you could hurl an insult, swing a sword, and play this game. Hmm. It was called Hnefetafel, hmm. which uh, it's, it's from the family of Tafel games, which we think means table game. Some people translate it as king's table. It's an asymmetric board game where, where one side is trying to escape the board and the other side is trying to capture them. And they think that it comes from the time when they were in Russia. They, they settled in Russia, and then the Moscovites rallied and chased them out. And they think that the Viking retreat from Russia when they were being overwhelmed by a superior Slavic army is the model for Hanafetafel. So uh, I reason that people, kids are, have always, gamers have always been gamers. And that as passionate as I and my son are about video games, they would have been about their board games. And I just took the 21st century video game junkie personality and dumped it into a child from a mythical world's past. 
And right after I did that was when they uncovered that 20-sided dice from ancient Greece. Did you see that? Yep, I've seen yeah. that. It's pretty and awesome. And I saw that, and I'm like, I was right. You know what I mean? Somebody was rolled. There's an, oh, it may have had ritual use. No, it didn't. It was a gaming <laughs> dice. You know exactly what that is. Don't pretend that the priests were rolling that, <laughs> unless they were doing it in their spare time. Yeah. Um, you know, that was a gamer. That was a gamer. It's always They've always been gamers. And so that thing came out right after I'd made that decision. I was so happy. <laughs> so when I was writing the book, I thought I could just uh, – we don't know how Hunef Apple was played. They, they wrote songs about it, but they didn't describe the rules. They just described the cool moves. So if Snorri hit Siggy over the head with an axe because Siggy <laughs> was cheating, they would describe it. You know, But they, but they, didn't, um, they didn't tell us that just the cool move, the winning move, the cheating move. And so there are a number of societies on, uh, that have reconstructed them. And I found about three different reconstructions online that were very different, even down to like the number of playing pieces and the number of squares on the board and some radically different rules. And I thought, I'll just crib. I'll just fake it. And I got into the book and I realized that I really had to decide which version I was using because yeah. it was becoming more important. And I looked at it and none of them were what I needed. Not that they weren't good. They just weren't right for me. Yeah. And I also realized that it was really a big part of the book, and it would be better if it was if I had a coherent set of rules that were mine. And so I went to to Michael's craft store, and I bought a bunch of wooden dowels and paint pens and a twelve by twelve board, and I made the set. And then I stopped writing. I spent a week figuring out what rules I wanted, and I ended up keeping you know taking some rules from here and some rules from there, but throwing out a lot and creating some rules specific to my needs that aren't in Hanefitapple. And I came up with a set of rules, which are, are inspired by, but are not analogous to any version of the table that we play today. And I am lucky in that my two oldest nephews are chess champions in the state of Alabama. And I took them to Starbucks and bought them coffee and put the game down between <laughs> the two of them and said, play. Have fun. And they played for three hours. We had a, nice. people at Starbucks gathered around the table watching, and they, they played and played and played. And they couldn't find any breaks in it. They loved it. They nice. didn't want to give it back. And my wife called and said, you're late for dinner. And I said, I can't get up and quit playing. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I knew it had something. And so yeah. we put the rules in the back of the book. And, and it has been fantastic with kids making their own sets and sending me pictures and playing against kids, And like we said. So, you know, having done that once, of course, I'm expected to do it every book. Sure. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm very proud of the game in the second book, Chariot of Tears, because, um, you know, even though it is its own thing, uh, Thrones and Bones is is inspired by Hanefetapple. There's a... Mm. Fritz Lieber, the writer of Baffert and the Grey Mouser, had a line once where he said, chess, that demon game that exists in every world. <laughs> and I, that line has never left me. And so I love the idea that you have versions of chess. You know, I, I, John Carter, the chessman of Mars, mm-hmm. uh, the Egress Burroughs novel, he goes to a place where he plays live jeton, which is Martian chess. In the back of that book, he published the rules for Martian chess. And that blew my mind as a kid. And I've always wanted to do that. So I did that. So with the game in book two, um, I, I, it's a racing game. There's a chariot race. That's not a spoiler. It's on the cover. <laughs> Hippodrome in a city. And I, need, I wanted a game that mirrored the chariot race. You know, so they'll play the board game, and then later they'll have to race the chariots. And uh, so it was going to be a dice racing game. And so I looked at backgammon but i looked at the roots of backgammon the royal game of ur and the egyptian game sunet and i studied all of the the antecedents of backgammon and i ended up not using any of it and creating (laughs) my own game in in the real hippodrome the chariot races you would start out in this wide wide lane 
and it would very quickly converge. Specifically so, they would encourage people to wreck. And it was just like NASCAR racing. Rich people backed your chariots. And the people with the most money got the, the preferential starting position. And the people with the least money or the least favored started way out on the end. And so in the game, you roll dice to determine starting order, and then it converges very quickly. So you start off with an advantage or a disadvantage. And then uh, a, a rich patron would back three or four chariots. And if you knew you were not going to win, if you saw, there's no way I'm making up this gap. I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. But somebody else that was also backed by your patron had a shot, then you would give up trying to win, and you would try and sabotage other chariots because you figure as long as your backer is making money, he's happy he'll keep spending money. So when we built the when I built the game, you have four playing pieces, but you only have to cross the finish line with two of them to win. Hmm. And you can use the other two, even after you've won the game, if you want, to continue to, to sabotage other players. <laughs> That's pretty and, cool. Uh, oh, I, I, it makes for a wonderfully yeah. exciting stabbing family game. <laughs> and, uh, so Those are the best. Make, yeah, you know, people make temporary alliances and people people, oh, people yeah. gang up and he's he's getting ahead. But the thing is, too, is when you crash, you have to start over. So if you if you if you play too ruthless, you may find yourself sent back to the beginning and having to pass everybody that you've that you've messed with. So uh, it's 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 a lot of fun. But I like the way that the the games reflect the story in some aspect each time we do them. Yeah, that's that's really awesome. And I think that what I'd really like to see from this is I'd like to see some of our listeners either write you or write into us or preferably both and tell us, hey, for my world, I created this game that is like a game within my world. And uh, I, I, I think, Chris, you've done that. I know I've done that for my world, but they're nowhere as complicated and by complicated, I mean uh, well thought out. Most of mine are like, like dice games that I come up with. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much what my, uh, most of mine are too. But I'd love to see some listeners like come up with some games that are for in their world and are just really, yeah, we'd love to see that. And hopefully that's something that comes out of this. Gaming in gaming is always fascinating. Yeah. Uh, as, as has, you know, I mean, I love the Avatar The Last Airbender series and they have the pie show game mm-hmm. that the uncle plays in that, uh, Uncle Iroh. And uh, you can play by show. And um, I mentioned the James Bond role-playing game. Yep. Gambling is such a part of every Bond movie. And the James Bond role-playing game had a system for how you could gamble in-game, and, and your character could be good at it even if you weren't. <laughs> and, uh, and, they, and they had incorporated into that how you could bluff or cheat in addition to just rolling your skill roll at gambling. And I haven't seen that duplicated again until the Fate role-playing game. Yeah. And it would be very easy to play out a, a James Bond game, Casino Royale, poker tournament with Fate, and bring in all kinds of palming cards and cheating and bluffing and intimidating and stuff like that. And you could do that. You could play a whole session of just playing against your opponent in a card game in Fate, and it would be beautiful. So yeah, gaming and gaming is is, is, is is something that's always always fascinating. Also, um, you know, yeah, listeners are welcome to write me. It's thronesandbones at gmail.com. And if they go to thronesandbones.com, there's a fabulous website that uh, Random House has built that has um, all of the maps, except the one in Skyborn, because that's not public yet, all of the maps up in full color on the website, along with character art and some stuff about the world. 
So, you know, I'm, I'm running a game in my world right now. I, I showed off one of my maps on a gaming forum, and, and I immediately got people going, I want a game in this world. <laughs> I was going to say, you totally should. There's no sense in building yeah. a whole new world to game in if you already have one to game in. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the reasons I want to build my own campaign setting one day is because I do have 60,000, 70,000 words yeah, of world right. building that I can't put into a novel, right. <laughs> uh, except in little bits. And, 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 you know, that screams build a game manual. Yep. But, you know, I, one of the things I talk about is uh, Ottoman orcs. And uh, I love Tolkien. Clearly, I love yeah. Tolkien. But one of my pet peeves is that Tolkien creates a degenerate race that it is perfectly okay to commit genocide against with no consequence. <laughs> you know, orcs are evil, therefore we can wipe them out entirely. They all run into the woods, none come out. And uh, everybody's cool with that. We've just, we've just blasted them off the planet, and that's fine. Which I think and is the normal... It's a very big it, fantasy trope. Yeah, It yeah. is a big fantasy trope, and it's a horrible one. It's not a... It's not a is is not a you know it was fine I guess when he was writing out of the experience of fighting Nazis, but uh, or was he World War One? He I think you know, he was World with, War One. World War One, but it stretches into World yeah, War yeah, Two yeah. with this fiction. Yeah, and clearly he says he's not inspired by it, but clearly he clearly. was. <laughs> clearly, clearly he was. Uh, and uh, especially when you find out that Hitler was seeking magic items like the spear of long, you know, yeah, that yep. pierced Christ's side, yeah. things like that. Yeah. So clearly he was, and and I guess you know Nazis are a bad guy that it's great to hate. You can wipe them out entirely. <laughs> that's fine, but but uh, you know in this day and age you just can't have that. Yeah. You can't have that. And so years before I ever became a writer, I thought if I ever have orcs, they're going to be the most sophisticated people on the planet. Hmm. So my oscuri are orcs that are philosophers and poets and lovers of dance and floral arrangements and mathematics and astrology and astronomy. And they have an incredibly uh, ornate culture, which they're so enamored with that they're going to conquer the rest of us because we're barbarians. And they're going to do us a favor by uplifting us to their level. Yeah, after you talked about that in Nightborn, I uh, I was already excited to read it. But that's just such a like that's not something I've heard of ever before, which I'm sure is part of was part of your thinking in like creating that. Um, okay. And it just it interests me so much to read your take on those kind of those orcs as a people i have these feelings about you lou that you're just like all right i see something that's so contradictory to what i think like you had uh you had the female like sidekick you're like i'm gonna make it a i'm gonna make her the main character you have it with orcs i'm like i have a feeling he just does this with things that he doesn't <laughs> that he doesn't like flips them on their head <laughs> yeah right right yeah i think one of the operating principles is that i'm trying to write the lord of the rings for eight to twelve year olds mm-hmm but instead of making it be about a bunch of old white guys, it'll be about a diverse cast of characters. Yeah, yeah. That's at least fifty percent female. Yeah. Because that's the world, you know, and and that's what we want to reflect because that's the reality. Right. I create a whole religion for the orcs that is not in the book at all. One of my orc rulers swears by the seven sons of the moon and the and the nine daughters of the sun. But that's all he does. He just swears by the seven sons of the moon and the nine daughters of the sun. But I have this whole pantheon that I'm quite that I'd love to share for just a moment if I can. Go for, I, it. Yeah, go for it. Because it didn't make the book. <laughs> which is you have uh, you have the five above, the seven sons of the moon, the nine daughters of the sun, and the three children of the lesser moon. The five above it starts with a guy named Sha Ogon, who is the creator and personification of the heavens, and he is the one who controls the celestial sphere and he maintains its motion. Then he has Sugat, 
the God of time, his brother. And it's this guy's burden to keep it running. You know, the celestial sphere is like a big brass clockwork machine. And so the head god is like, I dictate that this planet goes here and this star goes there and this goes there. And his brother has to actually push them or wind them or oil them or polish them or fix the gears. And so that guy's got a bad job. <laughs> and then you have uh, uh, in the lesser god, I won't talk about all the five above, but, they're all, but the five above are, are kind of concerned with things on the macro level. They don't really care about individual people. You know, they're, they're busy making the planets move. And so then you have seven sons of the moon, and they are lesser gods who will do more for you, you know, because they're, they're not as big as the, as, as the, uh, the above. And uh, you have um, uh, Tai Imur, the god of war, and he has been charged with conquering the world so that Umalgan, the god of benevolence, and Karshan, the god of wisdom and knowledge, can come in behind him and enlighten the world. But they can only do that after he's conquered it. So it's his, he's not a war god that's gung-ho war. He's a war god, like so many war gods, like Ares or something. He's a war god who's like, I got this thing I gotta do because my brothers won't get off my back until it's done. <laughs> right. You know, so it's a burden. My burden is that I must conquer the world for its own good so that the gods of benevolence and wisdom can follow. I have the line, Tyamur is an impatient god, for only when all people are brought together under the banner of the Askiri can he rest. Hmm. I love that. So that's their, that, that informs a lot of their philosophy. Yeah. One of the things I want to do one day is go to my moons, because different religions have, you know, you, you talk about world building. I find that the things that I seem to do from book to book is talk about what people eat, talk about how they bury their dead, if they bury their dead, and talk about what they call the moons. Those three things seem to crop up as, as quick cultural signifiers to tell you where you are and how this is different. Yeah. You know, it's, it's something fast and shorthand you can do to just say things are different here. Yeah, that's good. And I'd love one day to go to the moons because everybody will have their own cultural expectation about which, who lives there. They can't all be right, right? <laughs> right. Or can they? <laughs> or can, I would say, or can they? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so wrapping this up, Lou, this discussion about uh, how you built your world, which has some really great gems of wisdom for somebody who is making their own world for their gaming experience at home. If you had one little piece of advice for a DM out there who is sitting down and trying to create their own world, or maybe just maybe just some words of encouragement, what, what would that be? Well, I think I'd say two things. The first thing I would say is that 90% of the world wants to sit on a couch and let someone else entertain them. And it's a very small percentage of people who want to create that entertainment. But it is infinitely more rewarding to be the creator and participant in it than it is to just be a passive consumer of it. So no matter how hard it is, the rewards for doing it are, are worthwhile tremendously worthwhile uh, and the other thing is is everything is a muscle you know you you can't walk into the gym and bench press 200 pounds your first time in unless you're seven feet tall I guess. yeah but even then you're going to be sore the but, next day yeah and it you know but the more you do something the better you get at it and your first efforts aren't going to be any good 
no one's first efforts are any good. And if they are, the rest of us will hate you. <laughs> One of the most encouraging things I ever heard. I, I'm I'm a, I'm absolutely obsessed with David Bowie. David Bowie is is an absolute genius <laughs> who reinvents himself every album, and is still putting out, a, out cutting edge music in his in his late fifties or early sixties. Um, that's that's you know his last album. The next day uh, is there's some stuff on there that's just plain difficult. It's just difficult. He's not the Rolling Stones sitting back and kicking out the same thing year after year. <laughs> right. He's He's actually still in the vanguard of music, putting out stuff that no one's doing. Plays multiple in instruments, sings across different octaves. Is actually is trained in kabuki theater. Uh, is a it was an actor before he was a musician. You know, some people are like I don't know if David Bowie acts. He was acting longer than he was performing, and is a master of of, of all kinds of arts. He used to write a, a, a column on on neo African art for uh, a, a particular art magazine. Absolute genius. And one of the most encouraging things I ever heard was an unofficial biography that went to the school he grew up in and talked to his teachers, and they all described him as a somewhat unexceptional student. Hmm. <laughs> and, you know, he was not born a genius. It was perseverance. Right. It was perseverance. They had the, the, the Chicago Now, uh, uh, the Chicago Museum of Art had the Dave Boy Is exhibit. I got to visit. And it was a huge exhibit, exhaustive exhibit on his whole career. And they didn't shy away from talking about the period of time when he was um, very paranoid and very addicted to drugs. And the one, th the one of the things I got out of that was that even when he was at the worst period of his whole life, the one thing he never lost was his work effort, his work ethic. And he's, you know, I have, a, I'm a, I'm a huge David Bowie fan. I have a friend who's not interested in Bowie at all. We both went to the museum together. He wanted to spend more time in it than I did. He came out of it and said. You know, what I've gotten out of this is that this guy succeeded not because of talent, although he has it, or or any other factor, but because of sheer determination and the refusal to quit. I think the people who make it make it because they don't give up in any field, whether it's the acting or writing or directing or or any field. The, the people who excel are not necessarily the best. They're the ones who refuse to quit. Yeah. And, and if they are the best, it's because they used to be the worst, and they tried and tried and tried and tried and tried, and they never stopped because everything is a muscle, and the more you do something, the better you get at it. And, you know, start now. Start now. Now is the best time to start anything. Uh, I wish I could go back in time and start me writing 20 years ago because I would be the greatest writer in the world <laughs> if I had written one book a year for 20 years, yeah. you know? Um, and those of you who don't have kids yet, you have so much free time, you have no idea. <laughs> You're just, I, there was an old movie called Slackers uh, by John Linkletter, and there's a scene where a guy gets up from sitting around doing nothing, and he starts walking down, and his friend says, where are you going? And he says, well, I, I got rehearsal in about eight hours, so I figure I better start heading over. <laughs> yeah. And that was so my life as a 20-something, and... I want to go back and go eight hours. You could build an entire campaign in it. You could design an entire country and its religion in eight yeah. hours. You could you could outline a novel in eight hours. I wish I had eight hours. <laughs> I wish I had one hour. You know, so so do it now and don't worry about the quality. Just keep doing it. Yeah. You know, yeah. the more you do it, the better it'll be. And the more rewarding it'll be is if you do it yourself. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah, that's some great advice. And something that strikes me as so true because I know for me, probably 90% of the my world building happened when I was in college. 
and I wasn't married and I didn't have a full-time job and I just had a lot of free time on my hands. And yeah, if you're in that position, take that advice and just start doing that. Well, you you guys are pretty good time managers because I'm listening, I've been listening to your podcast a bunch lately and there's a story time every one and I'm sitting here going, wait a minute, they have time to both put the podcast together and edit it <laughs> and play a game every week that they can talk about at story time? <laughs> <laughs> Well, what you don't see is me and Chris pulling our hair out on the uh, <laughs> trying to uh, get all that stuff done. So, and uh, you're, yeah. you're you're not really gaming; you're just improv. We're just making it up uh, as we there, go. There was no yeah. real, last time we, we we killed a blue dragon. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, we've a Coca Cola. We've can never actually played Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> oh gosh, <laughs> the secret is out. Okay, so. Thanks, Lou, for joining us again. We'll have Lou back with us next week for Top Tens. Until then, let's pass it on to DM Neo with DMnastics. Welcome back to DMnastics, the gym for dungeon masters to work out their minds. I'm DM Neo, and for this DMnastics, it was tied back to episode number 38, Creation and Inspiration 4, Part 1, Going in Detailed. And the guest for that episode was Morgan from Going In Blind. And you know what? I think he actually is here. Is he? <gasps> he, <laughs> he is. No, I am. I am. I'm here and I'm not up at 12 o'clock at night this time around. Yes. Which is very... In fact, it's probably closer to you being up at that hour. So we've swapped. It's true. So, yeah, things are flipped upside down. He's probably having summer. I'm having winter. It's crazy. That is correct. We just had a 42-degree day in Celsius, which I'm not entirely sure what it is in Fahrenheit, but it's up near 100. I can tell you that much. Uh, add 30 and times 2? So, I don't know. I don't know. How to, it's, it's a lot of math. <laughs> it is. It's a lot of math. And you'd think that I'd be happier with math being a dungeon master, but no. No, math terrifies me. I love it, but it terrifies me. And then before you know it, you're going to tell me something in meters, and I'm not, mm-mm, mm-mm, not, not for me. Uh, why would I do something that horrible? I could certainly tell you how many kilometers I oh. had to travel today. And I will tell you how many miles I traveled. <laughs> <laughs> so for this DMnastics, it was number 21, and it was titled The Devils in the Details. So what I ended up doing for this one is grabbing a sentence that Morgan had stated in the podcast and kind of used that as a catalyst for the dungeon masters on the forums to keep going with that single sentence of description that Morgan had given and just kind of see where it took us. So what we're going to do is kind of read off some of those ideas and like I said, see where it takes us. Seeing as how Morgan was the one that said it and then I wrote it, I figured Morgan should probably say what he had said again. <laughs> okay, so let's see if I can give it as much gravitas as I did before. The flow of the countryside around them changes, and the tree lines recede. Then they hear the sound of church bells ahead. Yeah. Now, I'm no, now I have to follow that up. That's... <laughs> Alright, so I, to kind of kick it off, I was also the one that went second. So, I am not going to put that much gravitas on it. That's all there is to it. <laughs> The church bells are clearly audible and are likely only a mile or so away. They ring for longer than simply telling the time, but there's no indication as to why they would ring for that long. So, you know, just kind of, it's Dungeons and Dragons, it's role-playing. Obviously, the situation should escalate, so that was my subtle escalation. But in a lot of ways, I don't know that I said 
anything besides giving a clearer picture. Well, you have. I mean, that's the, you know, I was quite lucky in that all I had to do was paint the very broad strokes, but you've had to bring in a bit more emphasis on things, whether it be the 1.6 kilometres or so away, uh, <laughs> or, um, sorry, a mile. Uh, oh, or, okay, you know, I'm back. <laughs> I, bl- I blacked uh, but, out there for a second. <laughs> but also, yeah, you, you're providing a little bit more of a mystery to it, where there was very little mystery about countryside and trees. I'll let you take the next one that was done by DM Grindle. The rich green countryside surrounding you is dotted with small farms, each barely more than a shed attached to a ramshackle barn. Despite their number and the fast-approaching harvest, the fields are empty. A mass of black birds rise out of a nearby field, leaving the ineffective scarecrow to guard the crops. Their raucous calls echo overhead as they begin to circle ominously above you. Thanks, to escalated i don't know for me i like where it's going because it's giving you more detail but at the same time it's not giving you too much detail Mm. there's still so much that you can try and infer in your own mind that i can't envision players not trying to think like what's next what's next what's gonna happen and in terms of being if you were to think of this travel to the town as a module or adventure in and of itself you're heading towards the town, you're thinking, oh, the town's where it's going to happen, where everything's going to kick into gear. All of a sudden, we've got crows rising up and we've got them circling around you. Or I'm assuming they're crows. Uh, They're just black birds. They could have been ravens. But, you know, they're circling you and all of a sudden you have a potential encounter on your hands. So you don't know if you're even going to get to the town and find out what the ringing bell is about. And you have this fantastic description of this ineffective scarecrow just sitting in the field and i really enjoy the shed attached to the ramshackle barn because so often when you hear of someone just say oh it's a small farm you just leave that to the imagination so giving those extra couple of details really helped paint that picture of exactly where i'm about to be pecked to death and that's a point that i hadn't even really thought of because where i live farms are common so when you tell me a small farm my immediate assumption is a decent size. I mean, it's probably going to have several hundred head of cattle there. And that's <laughs> small. I mean, just because that's small for the area that I live in. But yes. when you tell me it's a shed attached to a ramshackle barn, I no longer assume that. And I can get a much more vivid picture of where I'm going to be pecked to death. <laughs> <laughs> So for the last one, it was done by DM Mad Maxi. And I'll try and gravitas it up a little. (laughs) No, I won't. I'm just going to read it and whatever happens, happens. As you continue to trudge toward the small farming community, you notice the fields lay empty and flaxen, signaling the passing of autumn and the onset of winter. With each step, the ground makes a loud slurping sound and your feet grow heavier and damper. The sound of hastened church bells ringing in the distance sounds the alarm. As you quicken your pace through the goopy mud, you smell a heavy and smoky aroma. Then a large, dense, black cloud creeps above the treetops. Your senses combine into a single scene which plays out in your mind. Danger. Forgoing your own personal safety, you charge forward. Things have officially escalated at that point. And gone in a very different but interesting direction. 
the whole time I'm thinking of this, and I think it's actually kind of off of something that you said, and maybe a little bit of, of what we were talking about before we started recording, but this would be an awesome intro to a module. You just have your group of adventurers that are already together, and you know, and they're walking through the countryside, as adventurers are wont to do, and <laughs> then this scene unfolds in front of them. I would not wish that upon anyone. That sounds terrifying. <laughs> That's no, great. That's great. You know, you're just like, hello, welcome to Dungeons and Dragons, where a nice walk through farmland just spells your death in goopy mud, and you're having visions, and there's now a black cloud. So much is happening here. And I, I love that DM Mad Maxi has brought a time to it as well, because we didn't have that. We just had generic farm. We had generic, well, not generic, but we, we didn't have a time associated with anything. So we didn't have that feel of now we know autumn is passing. We're coming up to winter and the ground is just mud. The tracks that we're on are sodden. And it really changes because prior to this, I was actually, I was almost feeling dust bowly with these desolate, empty farms. I was kind of envisioning, or maybe it's just because I live in Australia, which is one giant dust bowl. But uh, that. <laughs> yesterday, standing on the asphalt and literally my shoes melted into it. So um, uh, courtesy of the heat. So it actually, it became quite goopy. So I, I'm, uh, which is why I keep getting drawn back to goopy mud because I recently experienced goopy <laughs> and that's awesome so i can really sort of feel what the players and what the characters would be going through i don't know where you would go from this uh, and you could go in so many directions you could head to these crows you could have them interact with this dense black cloud so you end up with this evil creepy thing that comes over the treetops and blinds everybody and then you're also getting pecked to death and then you've still got these bells ringing in the distance and getting louder and more what was it hastening church bells ringing in the distance so it's getting more terrified whatever's happening miles and uh, sorry a single mile away but what's happening right around you as well is also terrifying why do i inspire so much terror well, it's not going to get any better uh, <laughs> for the next one. But the uh, the other thing that was interesting to me from the DM perspective is also kind of breaking down what has been said and kind of looking at the mechanical aspect that these present. So, you know, you're talking about that goopy mud. If the blackbirds, be they ravens or crows, who knows? No, they're definitely crows because a group is called a murder. <laughs> no, it's, it's canon. They're crows. But when they attack, disadvantage, difficult terrain for whatever setting that means or what, you know, what that presents to you. So, I mean, with these better descriptions, I think you can do a, a better job being prepared as a DM to make those hit home in game as well. Oh, so much so. And if you're in something like heavy armor or you're just flat footed like myself and you're in this goopy mud, you're going to have difficulty moving, whether that's your movement distance halved or whether, like myself, you end up wandering around as if you're in a drunken stupor without being in a drunken stupor because you keep getting stuck and losing a boot. That could just straight up be disadvantage because you're having so much trouble maneuvering through this mud. So I say it's time for you, Morgan, to tell us where we could go hear more awesome and probably terrifying ideas from you. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. I love my players and wish them nothing but happy rainbow fluffy kisses. I, I've i listened to your podcast and I don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Oh dear. So you can find myself or my players, as uh, as you mentioned, Neil, at a podcast called Going In Blind, where a group of vision impaired players sit down with me, their DM, and together play Dungeons and Dragons. We're currently playing the fifth edition starter set, Lost Mine of Fandelvers. We're also, uh, we've got a Shadowrun game starting up that will be airing soon with a different group of players, Chris and Rick. And also we have another player joining our main two, Kat and Maddie, who are wonderful and sick and twisted. And I'm fairly certain it's their fault that I am this way. You can find us on Stitcher and iTunes, just going in blind and also going in blind D&D on Twitter tends to be where I am the most. So you can come torture me there. Awesome. I just want to implore the listeners that if you want to jump in on these conversations, maybe add another piece to what does that black cloud mean? Do the murder of crows murder? Just go ahead and head over to dungeonmasterblock.freeforums.net. Try some gymnastics so your players don't ask, do you even lift? I gotta get a pop. That's it. It's good. It hurts. I know it does. That's it. Get it. Well, that's all that we have for you today on this episode of the Dungeon Masters Block. But come back next week for our top tens for the conclusion of this two-parter of creation and inspiration with Lou Anders. He'll be back with us next week, and he'll be sharing his own top tens as well as, you know, Chris and me, as we always do. And it'll just be a fantastic time. Chris, if they would like to get in touch with us, maybe write into us and be able to ask us, maybe they've they've heard a little bit about how Lou Anders built his world. Maybe there's some questions about our worlds or whatever it is. Maybe they have some top tens that they want to write into us about. Where can they get in touch with us at? Yeah, if you want to email us at dungeonmasterblock at gmail.com, uh, we can read as much of your mail as you would like to send to us. You can also, if you wouldn't mind, go and leave us a five-star review if you haven't already. Uh, it helps us get out in front of some more audience and helps us uh, be able to bring the same type of inspiration that we brought to you to other people as well. Uh, and we're also on Stitcher if you don't have an iPhone, which I don't. <laughs> uh, you can follow us on Twitter at DMS underscore block. That's at DMS block. And you can also like our Facebook page. Both of those places have some fantastic news about our show, D&D memes, and just D&D news all around. So like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, all that great stuff. We have a Patreon member shout-out of the week, and our Patreon member shout-out for this week is... Nick and Ellie Hoyt. Hey, thank you very much, Nick and Ellie. Nick and Ellie, or just Nick, or just Ellie, whoever decided to... Or maybe it's both. Uh, our silver dragon with parentheses S for dragons. If They're it is in fact clearly a silver them. dragon with two heads for. Oh, that's what it is. What it yeah, is. yeah, yeah. Only the the greatest Tiamat worshippers ah, get those. I, oh, I silver dragon. I do have I a two-headed oh, dragon. I do have a two-headed dragon from the dollar store that I'm yeah, trying to figure out what I want to do yep, with. Yep. So, <laughs> ooh, a silver two-headed dragon named Nick and Ellie yep, Hoyt the dragon. Go. There we go. Thanks, Nick and Ellie. I found my use. Uh, Well, with that, that's all that we have for you today on the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all other people at the table. Have a good night, everyone. Keep on Dungeon Mastering.
goodbye.